fellow Westorians. I'm Aziz. With me is Ashea, and this is Valariridus. A Dance with Dragons is the longest of the books so far. It's also the darkest and least understood, thanks to being the most recent. It's the culmination also so far of George's style, honed over the course of the prior books and the rest of his career. It has the extended length of A Storm of Swords. The expanded pacing of A Feast for Crows brings POVs together like A Clash of Kings and as the setup of A Game of Thrones. If you're watching live, feel free to ask live questions. You can also send questions and comments ahead of time by joining the discussion on one of our social media platforms, Facebook, Flick, Discord, and Slack. Yes, those are ours. We own them. We, we are owners of Facebook, Flick, Discord, and Slack. Bet you didn't know that. Mm-hmm. We just moonlight as podcasters. Please check out the Isle of Faces podcast. That's Joe Buckley's show. It's really good. And it's in tandem with us over here on History of Westeros. Also check out Nina Friel on Tumblr. That's Good Queen Alley with one L. Lots of great thoughts on a variety of topics, large and small. If you are a patron or have been thinking about joining History of Westeros on Patreon, we have the POV by POV episodes up for A Feast for Crows. So if you are in the mood, you can listen to, say, all of the, I don't know, um, let's say Sam chapters in a row, or let's say all the Dorn chapters, or all the Ironborn chapters, or however you want to do it. We've got it organized that way. Rather than the normal order, you can listen to it in POV by POV. Pretty cool way to do it. Keeps you really focused and immersed in a single character. Good thing to do if you're pretty familiar with the books. Don't recommend that if you've only read them once. Today, we have The Watcher. Bows before the Red Viper's grave, a.k.a. It's my skull in a box. (laughs) John 8, the one where Val is an ambassador, a.k.a. the Doom of Hardhome. Tyrion 9, the storm in the flames, a.k.a. the stinky steward smells a slaver. And finally, the turncloak. The Heart Tree Weeps, a.k.a. Return to the Crypts of Winterfell. Oh, yeah. A Feast for Crows and A Dance of Dragons are roughly aligned chronologically at the beginning, meaning the events at the start of one are close to the events at the beginning of the other. That does not hold up true for the ends of each book because A Dance with Dragons is much longer than Feast. Feast is just over 2,000 audiobook minutes long. Yeah, audiobook minutes are different than regular minutes. <laughs> So it would be reasonable to guess that things align around 2,000 minutes into A Dance with Dragons. And we'd start to see the southern POVs come back into the fold. Actually starts a little earlier than that, more, more like the 1,500-minute marks, roughly. We get one chapter in Dorne. Two weeks from now, we'll have a solo Jamie chapter, which kicks off a run in which we'll have exactly one southern POV per Valar Reredus week, except week 18. Although one of those will be John Connington, but he'll be landing in the Stormland, so it will be technically in the South. On the heels of a chapter, The Prince of Winterfell, featuring Frey Pies, where avoiding guest right violations via technicalities, well, we get more of that today. While Hota takes note of who does and doesn't partake in the toast, Bowen Marsh refuses John's offer of food and drink, while Othel Yarwick and Septon Celador accept. Take note of that when pondering John's assassination later, especially in regards to who the conspirators are and who they are not. 
We may find ourselves using that same line of thinking when it comes to Dorne later too, if unhappiness with Dorne's rule goes further than we've seen, or if his careful planning falls apart for other reasons. Faith plays a strong role in this one. Theon has a sincere breakdown in front of the heart tree. The tree itself seems moved by that or something else or several something else's, I suppose. Optimism and hope are cousins to faith, and Penny is full of both, despite so much going wrong around her slash them. Tyrion holds on for dear life in the worst storm he could imagine, deciding he does want to live, and Makoro uses the storm to switch ships and POVs, a very audacious method of travel. The level of faith you need to follow that travel plan. Yeah, be swept off the ship, wait 10 days floating adrift, and then another ship will pick you up. It'll happen. Relore said so. You really have to have faith to go by that. <laughs> In John's chapter, we get a brief history of hard home and more discussion of the prophecy of Mother Mole who led them there. The faith and desperation of these people is shown here uh, by the, their actions. Hard home is known to be cursed, yet they went anyway. John too shows faith in Val, keeping her word. While she exacts a few promises from him in return for her return. And Doran Martell sees his nieces take a vow over the grave of their father slash his brother. That oath gives him faith in them after a bit of distrust beforehand. There's a mix of stoicism and putting on a brave face, pretending to be brave when you're not necessarily, which that's really how it works, isn't it? So, or so we've learned. Saying what's the opposite, perhaps, of what you're thinking. Theon's full of that, constantly dealing with trauma and solitude and loss of capability. On the outside, he's not crying or looking for sympathy. He's just kind of trying to be ignored. He doesn't want anyone to pay attention to him. Tyrion swallows his pride to do some pig and dog jousting and understands the dangers of their situation much better than Penny, but he needn't worry her with all that. He'll keep it to himself. John is increasingly forced to swallow his anger at his subordinates insubordination, his demeanor icy even as he feels fiery anger rising within, appropriate for him. In Hotah's case, he observes this from others. He himself is, not, is quite calm, but Doran and Ariane are putting on airs for Balin Swan, for their guests, for whoever else is watching and reporting back to King's Landing, because Doran knows surely there are spies in their midst. Meanwhile, Balin himself is, thanks to Cersei, telling all sorts of lies about a plan he probably doesn't have a lot of confidence in, but one he certainly doesn't want to carry out. Balin Swan doesn't really come off as a murderer, but that's what he's been tasked with. Unlike John, Balin Swan can barely conceal his discomfort at the hot food burning his tongue and his stomach, much less the dishonor eating him from the inside. Another theme, or perhaps pattern is a better word for it, is the mysterious fates of family and comrades. Tyrion again thinks of Jerry and Lannister, his uncle, the one who sailed to Valyria. John's uncle Benjen is mentioned. Perhaps Hardhome itself fits this theme apart from the family and comrades part. And John also continues to wonder about the six rangers he sent out. Meanwhile, we start today with questions about the identity of a certain skull, considered while the death of Sir Balin's sworn brother, Sir Aris Oakhart, is concealed for the time being, while they intend to pin the death on Sir Gerald Dane, a.k.a. Darkstar. Let's go to The Watcher. Vows before the Red Viper's grave, a.k.a. It's my skull in a box. And that, of course, is my skull in a box reference to Andy Samberg and Justin Timberlake's, uh, Timberlake's recurring SNL sketch 
by similar name. <laughs> On the heels of Theon watching an awkward wedding and hearing Lady Dustin's takes, Hota watches an awkward feast while hearing takes from the Martells and the others. I wouldn't say Theon and Ario Hota have a lot in common, but their chapters are very focused on observation and less on the actual POV character. That's even more true for Hota than for Theon, who we know a lot less about, but also he has a lot more inner peace, this guy. To be clear, Theon's chapter today is full of Theon, but his last one, the one we had last week, is really more about observing the feast, Jane's wedding, things like that. Theon's chapter portrays ice on the outside, literally. He's amidst snow, and it's a return to Winterfell for him and the reader. But internally, he's quite intense. You could use the word fire, perhaps. He's struggling with identity, feeling out of place, lonely, traumatized, constantly in pain. Meanwhile, Hota is ice cold, untroubled by his past, despite having been sold by his family, having moved from even farther away than Theon did. Uh, he's a stranger in a strange land, more so than Theon is, but more accepted and has had way more time to get used to it. He perceives his own identity without problem. He doesn't have doubts as to his duties or his abilities. He's very practiced at keeping it simple, about staying in his lane, so to speak. Uh, he's not a man in deep conflict. He has convictions, he has duties, but passions, maybe not. He's vigilant, but not worried. As a POV, he's the calm eye in the storm that is Dorne. As a character, he's the guardian of the calm eye in the storm, Prince Dorne. It's important to have examples like this to set the standard elsewhere, to highlight the differences between a chaotic mind and a disciplined one. If every chapter was like this, well, Hota, that might get a little old, but every once in a while, it's perfect. It's the perfect fit to have once every so often because so many hearts are in conflict in this series. But here we have the Zen of Hota. He doesn't even seem to feel surprised at the news that Cersei plans to murder Tristane and blame it on Tyrion. He was more surprised at the Sand Snake's reaction to that news than the news itself. He expected them to be unsurprised. Here's how it starts. Let us look upon this head, his prince commanded. The second line is Aryo Hota ran his hand along the smooth shaft of his long axe, his ashen iron wife all the while watching. That is, as Joe points out, a great way to summarize Hota. Watching, holding that axe. Those are his two main duties. Guarding, watching, right? That's, as we'll learn from Barristan later, as Hota's a bit of a setup for Barristan's chapters. That's the a very difficult job of a Kingsguard. It takes a lot of work. It takes a lot of practice. It's not like you know when your enemies are going to show up and you fight them then. You have to be constantly vigilant because you never know when those enemies are going to show up. You never know when they're going to act. And they're, in fact, waiting for you to slip up. So Ario remains in the shadows there, but maybe not unnoticed isn't the right word, but unremarked on. It's hard not to be aware of him. He's so large and intimidating. Of course, we don't necessarily see that ourselves. We have to assume that because we're in his mind and most people aren't staring at him, right? So he's pretty unique within the series. POVs, they often watch and listen, but they almost always have very personal stakes and reactions to what's going on. And Todd doesn't. And this is a big moment. Even this moment, he's not really concerned. But Gregor's head is a big deal to everybody else in the room, if it's Gregor's head. They've waited for this for a long time. They've wanted it for a long time. But 
because it's been so long, well, there have been new grievances since this one, and those haven't been resolved. And so a lot of folk aren't really in a celebrating mood. A large portion of the attendees refuse to toast, effectively refusing to take the skull as a sign that this is over. Maybe it would have been over had Oberyn not been killed fighting this very man whose skull sits before them. Remember, this is not the first time the Iron Throne has presented bones to the Martells as a goodwill gesture. Recall, at the beginning of Robert's reign, Oberyn was still making noise about raising Dorne for Viserys, as in Danny's brother, right? And John Aaron brokered a peace. Part of that peace was bringing the bones of Lewin Martell, the Kingsguard Knight, back to Dorne and, and making peace and saying nice things, all that. That helped bring things back down to a level of calm. And so there's a bit of a similarity here. There's some, uh, possibly some similar vibes. Of course, we didn't see that scene happen when it did. We only hear about it from a historical sense. But I bet there were some Dornish folk not accepting of that either. There were probably some people who attended that ceremony and didn't drink either. For something with so much focus, something that seemed like it was so potentially volatile, the reaction here is pretty subdued, right? They just, they're like, eh, yeah, okay. Some clearing throats, whispered prayers. Doran himself is a lot more effusive than the, rea- the rest of the reaction might seem. It's a little bit similar to John Connington announcing young Griff in front of the Golden Company. They're like, yep, okay, good announcement, bro. And of course, Hota himself, keeping with his the way he is, expresses nothing on the subject. He thinks things like this. Serve, protect, obey. Simple vows for simple men. That was all he knew. Right? I mean, (laughs) it's pretty straightforward. That's also a part of where he overlaps with Theon, despite their differences. One large, deadly, fearsome man versus an effectively helpless, maimed one. So what are you you talking about, Aziz? How How else are they similar? Physically, all, about all they have in common is hair color, which for Theon is odd having light hair. Serve, protect, and obey. For Theon, it's only two of those things. Not serve and obey. But he will protect Jane soon enough. A major similarity lies, too, in how little attachment they have to everything going on around them. They hear important secrets. They watch important people. They observe. They don't have friends. They don't have peers. Possessions, not really. Ambitions, not really. Uh, I mean, Theon does want to get away. That's something, if you call that an ambition, that is certainly count that. And while he's got a lot of home going on around him, Theon does, as far as the events, the politics, it doesn't really have much to do with him at all. Memories, though, they both have that. Hotas are really far in the past because he's been this, the Watcher, for so long. He wasn't nobly born like Theon, but he was the youngest boy like Theon. Someone without a place in their own home sent far away. Remember, Hotel was sold to the priests, to the priesthood. And, and that's what we're getting when Hotel thinks about how the spicy food in Doran used to tie his bowels in knots. Long ago, that's the person he used to be. Theon, likewise, has changed a lot, though obviously his changes were forced and sudden and a lot more recent. And though Hotel isn't unhappy or in pain, maybe he doesn't seem happy either. Maybe content is the right word, which is a fine thing to be. When he was given to the temple, he was branded. That was slavery, not in name, but in upbringing, because, well, he was effectively sold to Doran Martell, to the House Martell afterwards. He pledged, he had a choice not to, but what else was he going to do? 
a bit like the uh, Unsullied, perhaps. They can't go back to a normal life. They never had much in the way of childhoods or parenting. Ditto Hota. The abbreviated version of both is what they had. Danny gives them their freedom, but serving her is what they choose to do. Hota is not forced to stay with Doran Martell, but ditto. It's a good place for him to be. Contrast him to Arthur Dane or Jamie Lannister. They can't simply leave. An important difference. Their oath is permanent, right? They aren't, they don't have this choice. He's also not from a family with blood ties to any of these old feuds either. That's a nice thing. Like Arthur Dane, Jamie Lannister, the High Tower. Some always that always seems to happen with the Kingsguard. I mean, not always, but off and on, their family loyalties matter. Ditto the Maesters, we've learned, comes into play in other places, not just the Kingsguard. But this guy, nothing. No politics involved in his backstory or his family, no connections like that. There is no reason to think he's got anything else going on. Day-to-day lifestyle as a Kingsguard, though, very similar. They are watchers as well. The good ones, anyway. And the moral burden of a Kingsguard to Ares, though, hmm, much greater than being one to Dorne Martell. Knights of his Kingsguard were constantly tested by their own king's evil. Hota doesn't have to deal with that particular conflict. He may wonder if Doran's making the right moves. He doesn't. He assumes Doran's wise and doing smart things, but he's not faced with moral conundrums. Hotod also doesn't have peers. There aren't other Kingsguard. There aren't people he has to share this burden with. He has subordinates, but he's not going to have this kind of conflict, especially not things like the skull, right? The body of Gregor is still walking around with them, wearing, uh, is going to wear a white cloak pretty soon. Technically, he doesn't have it yet, but very soon. So what would you what would you do as a king's guard if you have that walking around? Like, what's your moral uh, obligation there? So of the two, I think more of Arthur Dane than Jamie Lannister. Jamie would be a different man if he lives long enough, but Jamie's cockiness is a different flavor than Dane's pure, relaxed confidence, which is what Hota seems to have. Again, the Zen of Hota. He, he he's utterly certain that he would beat Aerys Okar, and he was right. Here he runs an assessment on Sir Balon, you know, a, uh, an, uh, an optical pat-down. But uh, he considers Balon a lot more formidable. Personality-wise, too, he's wary, he's smarter, he's not, you know, a young boy. He, he thinks that Ares was a knight, but also a boy. But he also has no doubts that he would win. Even with this greater assessment of Balon Swan, he's still, there's no doubt in his mind that he would win. When Jamie Lannister had the instinct to interfere when Ares was violently abusing Rayella, he was told by John Derry that it wasn't their place to judge the king. I believe his readers were meant to see Jamie as correct. And Derry is the one, maybe loyal, but loyal to bad deeds, to evil. Improperly placing his oath to the king over that of his oath as a knight, let alone upholding just general common decency. The question is even raised here very subtly, but it's there. Tyene asks if Sir Gregor suffered before he died, and Balin Swan responds that while the man's crimes were great, he doesn't deny that, all knights deserve to die with sword in hand. Well, why is that, Sir Balin? Is no crime too great that it supersedes the status of knighthood? Is that really what he's saying? Or is it just because he too is a knight, and maybe he's a little worried about being sent to Dorne where poisonings happen? He's a little, little self, uh, thinking about himself a little bit. Does he really think that even a traitorous knight deserves to die with sword in hand? even one who murders children and tortures innocents? I guess he does. He might. I have a mostly solid view of Sir Balin, but that's not a good response. That's not a good look. So it is very predictable. Knights are a bit of a brotherhood. They tend to overinflate themselves even when it casts a terrible light on their own oaths. If you're going to defend or excuse Sir Gregor, I mean, 
how can you claim to uphold the values of defending the weak, right? It just, those two things just don't work together. Jamie and Sandor and Brienne have done a wonderful job educating us on the inherent hypocrisies therein. We're well prepared for moments like this, relatively speaking. And through Hota, we have the unusually unbiased view from which to examine the situation and take note. However, he's also speaking for himself in that with a sword in hand or standing guard like the POV himself, that's what he's good at, right? Balen Swan is good at fighting. That's what they train for. They train to fight. Sandor says it himself. He's like, all the other stuff is just dressing. They're a sword. They're a killer. That's what knights do. So this is why Balon is uncomfortable. Cersei's ordering him to do something that isn't fighting and guarding and knight's work. It's, right? Like we said, it's knight's work, not knight's work. Even this is something Hotaz removed from, though. He's not a knight. He doesn't, he's not part of that brotherhood. He's, he doesn't take any such oaths, doesn't worship the same gods. None of that. It's not personal to him at all. He doesn't care about defending or even criticizing the institution of knighthood. So yet another thing he's neutral on. Will Hota see conflicts like this? Will he be faced with moral conundrums? I don't know. I, I'm guessing not, probably. His vows don't conflict like theirs do. It's easy to argue that he's a decent man, but is he a good man? That remains to be seen, I guess. The last thing Doran Martell says in this chapter is this. Until the mountain crushed my brother's skull, no Dornishman had died in this war of the five kings, the prince murmured softly as Hota pulled a blanket over him. Tell me, Captain, is that my shame or my glory? Hota says it's not for him to answer. This is how he avoids questions like this and, and conundrums like this. Is It's not his to think about. He's extremely practiced at, at this, at not taking part. Again, so is it a good thing that he avoids those questions? It might help him do his job better. Uh, a better comparison than Dane or Lannister might be the one I brought up earlier, Barristan and Selmy. Similar in age, yet feared, and for good reason. Also out of place in politics, stranger in a strange land, right? Although in Selmy's case, he hasn't been getting used to Marine for, uh, you know, his whole life. Still, that is absolutely a parallel between them. Hota doesn't seem to have regrets. Selmy has a lot of regrets, so that's something they don't have in common. But that again shows us the value of this POV, the clean slate that we can judge others based on. We just compare everything to the clean slate. It gives us a starting basis. Somehow I doubt things will remain this simple for him, however. Change is coming to Dorn, chaos and war, and with that, the unexpected. He's prepared to fight, as always. His long axe is sharp enough to shave with, but is he prepared to make tough decisions? Is he prepared to know what's right? Is he prepared to adjust to a fluid situation that isn't just about fighting enemies. I have my doubts, given his lack of preparation for such and given his portrayal as someone who has practiced avoiding such questions because they don't pertain to his job. Maybe they do pertain to his job, they just haven't yet. Thorne has been itself staying out. But he is really good at what he does. As much as he is very much focused on watching, He's really good at watching. The details in this chapter are special because no one that we've seen is quite so talented or practiced at reading body language, at knowing when and where to look. Like he's ready to, like when the box opens, the skull box opens, everyone looks at it, but he looks at everybody else. Like he, it's dis, very disciplined where his eyes go. And that's cool. That's interesting. There's a lot more skill in observation than you might think. It's not just where you point your eyes, right? 
something that Barrison thinks about later is it's really difficult to maintain your focus just standing there, right? <laughs> With pretty much, I mean, even though you might occasionally be called to action, 99.999% of the time, you are just standing there. A good example comes almost right away. When the box is opened and he's looking elsewhere, he's judging people's reactions rather than looking at the skull. He knows the skull's going to be there 10 minutes, 20 minutes later. He can look at it then. But Balin Swan, in the, when the moment comes, is taut as a drawn bow. That's interesting, isn't it? He also doesn't know that Cersei has been imprisoned by the faith. <laughs> she gave him this mission after Cersei 4, and she had 10 chapters in Feast. Doran ordered the lords of the Boneway to entertain Swan thoroughly to slow his progress. And they may have concealed that news from him because it seems like that would have gotten out. And if Balon Swan knows about it, he's not giving any indication of that. There's no talk about it. Hotot notes how uneasy Swan is and knows there's a clear reason for that. Swan has to be concerned about the lack of Marcella and Aerys Okard at this feast. They say, oh, don't worry, man. He's over at, they're over at the water gardens. We're going to go there tomorrow. You'll see them. Something's not right about that. But we know, and as Doran knows, Cersei's plan is to have Tristane killed. So again, that's another reason why Sir Balin is uncomfortable. And Jamie, to further back up what I was saying about Balin being one of the decent ones, as far as Knights and Kingsguard go, he assessed his squad, right? Jamie called everybody together. And he didn't know Cyrus Ares Okart that well because he was down in Doran already, but he called the rest of them together. And he, he thought Loras and Dalen were the ones that seemed pretty solid. Like those guys are real knights. Whereas the rest, eh, they're pretty iffy. And we also pointed out way back in the Clash of Kings, Varys was seemingly angling to keep Balin off the Kingsguard. And at the time we guessed it was because uh, that Balon's a decent guy, that he's a decent knight good knight, a really good archer, a good fighter. So Varus wouldn't want that guy on the Kingsguard that he's going to make an enemy of. Now, choosing one of the decent Kingsguard to be a murderer probably wasn't Cersei's best idea, but that's moot because whoever it had been, Doran knows about it. Uh, so the plan would have been undermined no matter what. She could have picked the best possible candidate for this mission and it still would have been undone. So a question Big open question. How does Doran know? Who is feeding Doran secrets? The most obvious one is Varus. That fits really well. If it turns out to be Varus, I don't suppose a single person is going to be terribly surprised by that. But there are other possibilities. Uh, Kyburn himself could be giving up secrets. Why? I don't know. Maybe because he expects that Cersei won't last and he's got to make plans to jump ship when the time comes. On the other hand, he does seem very bought in to, to uh, serving her, you know, with his Robert Strong and all this business. So, who knows? Another option is Taina, Taina Merriweather, but we have guessed that Taina's working for Varys. So if, that, so if we're right about that, then this is six of one, half a dozen of the other. What's the difference if it's Varys or Taina if they're working together? If Taina's working for the Tyrells, as other people believe, uh, with val a valid theory, then this would make less sense for Taina to be the one passing info on Doran because of, mm, I don't think the Tyrells are trying to destroy <laughs> Tommen. Uh, bringing in the Sand Snakes is a good way to get Tommen murdered. I, I'm sure the Tyrells are aware of that possibility, even if they aren't aware of the specifics of how they might do that. It's also possible that whoever's passing info to Doran is giving info to other people as well. 
For example, maybe the Sand Snakes are being given info. Either way, it does not bode well for Tommen and Marcella and does bode well for Maggie the Frog's prophecy coming true. Not unlike Cersei's own father, whose murder of Elia's children kicked all this off, her plot to murder another Martell child could easily be met with a similar eye-for-an-eye attitude. So when Obara hears the news, she says, Obara's face was flushed. Give me back my spear, uncle. Cersei sent us ahead. We should send her a bag of them. Of course, that's just her initial reaction. She's, you know, kind of a hothead. But Doran then has them take an oath over their father's grave. This is a big deal. And again, Hotan notices the body language. Their oath to the Red Viper is something he thinks they'll take seriously, meaning Doran, not necessarily Hota, who, of course, doesn't really have an opinion on it. But he notices the relaxation in Doran when they take their oath, uh, which is an indication that he believes that they take the oath seriously. Will they? I don't know about that. A great take from flick commenter Sophia During the banquet, Arianne Martell says, uh, with regards to the spun sugar skulls that Balon thinks maybe he's being mocked over, right? Arianne says, oh, it's just our little joke. You know, Dornish people don't take death as sacred. So is that maybe a clue that they don't take death as sacred, that this oath over their father's grave is not all that serious? It's entirely possible. Another possibility is they already took some sort of secret oath that conflicts with this one. And if so, then conflicting oaths come back into the fold, which is, uh, would be pretty interesting, although I feel like they would not be terribly conflicted over, <laughs> over which oath to stick to. The Doran, this, this Doran plot just has so much potential to be enormously different than the TV show, making it a wealth of untapped mystery. The way Doran swings around, the way he, his demeanor changes, yet the way he is also struggling with his blanket and the way his legs are so nightmarish. That Hotot does have a reaction to. He's seen them plenty of times and it still makes him a little uneasy, which is really telling because of how little else makes him uneasy. Again, Hotot as the clean slate. <laughs> if he reacts to something, it's, it's a big deal because of how little he reacts to other things. What really reminds me a bit of, of Bloodraven, lingering a man in really terrible health who has things undone. You get the sense that part of the reason he's still alive is because he has unfinished business. That's very much what Leaf says about Blood Raven's brand. He's, he's alive still because he has a job to do. And part of that job is to pass on what he knows. And Doran is doing a little of that here. He, after their oath, fills them in. He gives them a lot more info than they had. He trusts them more. A blatantly obvious difference from TV, we, we've mentioned this before, it bears re-mentioned briefly, Ilaria Sand. One of the most bloodthirsty, revenge-minded characters of the entire run of the show. The polar opposite here, a voice of peace, a champion of breaking the cycle of violence, a great character, not a lot of screen time, but very meaningful. Her presence says a lot because of what it represents. It's interesting how a character like that could be having such a strong relationship with Oberyn and how the Sand Snakes just are somewhat blind to that, right? Doran tries to get them to see this. He's like, look, he worked with me. Your father, who you think of as so bloodthirsty, he was a lot more subtle than you think. Just based on the fact that he was so close to me, Mr. Peacenick, and Ilaria, 
Mrs. Peacenick, right? That says a lot. Two of the people he was closest to were not at all violent and bloodthirsty like he's portrayed as. That's a pretty strong argument. Here's a great take from Joe as well. Part of that, of this overall message coming from George is this unending nature of revenge and how it will never fill the hole of, right? Vengeance doesn't make you feel better. They don't want to receive their vengeance from someone else. They want to actively get it. They're goading Sir Balin. They're looking for any way to let this passion out to, to resolve it. Gregor is one thing. He's an active monster. Now they just start talking about killing children, right? They start to sound as bad as the people that they're taking revenge on. They're not because they haven't actually done it. <laughs> but it sounds bad. And Doran is trying to rein that in a bit and try to get them to understand what really matters. One possibility we've mentioned is that Ilaria is the equivalent of show Ilaria, is the equivalent of book Darkstar. He's got the same kind of start this, start it all up, start a war, make it bloody, make it chaotic. No room for compromise, that type of style. In that sense, they sort of fit. Ilaria's other branch of the family, like her other side of her family is the Ullers. And they're one of the families that doesn't drink. So even her family is not on her side in this. So she must feel pretty isolated. She does have her children. And, you know, one of them is going to become a character uh, in The Winds of Winter, Elia Sand, Lady Lance. A bit of a Liana parallel <laughs> burgeoning there. So we'll, be, we'll have fun talking about her when that comes around. Madorn has gotten word from a different source. Maybe it's Varus again, but this is news from Lise. And it's news about the Golden Company, though he doesn't know it's the Golden Company. He hears about elephants, which is our clue. He thinks it's Danny. He's, he even thinks, oh, you know, well, uh, putting a dragon on inside the ship, inside the hold, you could conceal a small dragon in there. Well, he's not wrong that you could conceal a small dragon there, but her dragons are not that small anymore. So there's no concealing them. So he's, he's wrong on a lot of the, a lot of his guesses are wrong, even if he has some pretty important information. And he doesn't know anything about young Griff. This is a complete blind spot for him. And that's part of where the Winds of Winter chapters are going to start for Doran is, is reacting to that change. Appropriately enough, he says, Doran says, I may send messages to you if certain things happen or don't happen. Things can change quickly in the Game of Thrones. Yep, sure enough. Interestingly too, though, even though this chapter is right here around the halfway point of the book, by the end of this book, they still haven't arrived in King's Landing. So as far as like figuring out where this chapter fits chronologically, it might be a little later in the timeline than the placement in the book indicates. But that might, in fact, be part of the timing. This is kind of a new thought that I had never really considered before, is that if Varys knows the Sand Snakes are about to show up, he knows they're traveling towards King's Landing. And he also knows that the Golden Company has just showed up. Well, he murders Kevin at the end of that chapter. Of course, part of the reason is he wants Cersei back in charge. He, you know, time is ripe for things to start trending in the direction of his chosen candidate. He wants people to start allying with him instead of sticking with the Lannisters. But maybe the impending, impending arrival of the Sand Snakes is part of the calculus there. He's like, well, now's the time to kill Kevin because Kevin's doing a good job. Kevin's smoothing things over. Maybe he wouldn't be able to do that with the Sand Snakes, but don't even give him a chance. Better to have the object of their hatred in place, back in charge, to keep things chaotic, to keep things distracted. 
because that's what Varus wants. Because if, if we're recapping here, uh, Nymeria is going to take her father's seat on the council and Tyene is going to go in disguise as a septa to get close to the High Sparrow, who is, of course, an enemy of Cersei. You know, Varus might, in other words, might rather have Cersei deal directly with Nymeria. <laughs> so that would, well, that would be a lot of friction. The sponge sugar skulls thing, I want to bring that up again because it's a wonderful parallel to what we saw again in the last chapter of the Prince of Winterfell. When Lady Dustin is like, Look at how cowardly Manderly is. He's acting like he's friends with everybody, even as he's been beaten down and forced into an arrangement he doesn't like. But Theon is skeptical about that. He says, well, I'm not sure that's what it is. When, you know, in Iron, on the Iron Islands, when we go off to battle, we party before we go to battle because it's one last taste of life before death. And during our analysis, we said the same thing. Wyman Manderly knows he's going to die. And so this is the opposite of fear. Uh, this is the opposite of cowardice. He's bravely facing death by partying. <laughs> He's like having, you know, stuff in his face, drinking wine, having a good time while enjoying his revenge. Well, that's what uh, is expressed here by Ariane with the skulls. They're like, yeah, the skulls, we're, we're having a joke about death. We're not joking at you. We're not making fun of you. Although, arguably, they are making fun of you. <laughs> but Ariane's being... <laughs> kind of smoothing it over. And well, Sir Balin didn't bite on that offering either. Well, a qu open question I have is maybe there's some things that are going on in this scene that even Hota doesn't fully understand. Well, there's definitely some of that. For example, at one point, Obara storms out of the room. She upends her cup, then leaves. Then she comes back. And I'm, I'm wondering if she went and talked to somebody. Did someone have news for her? Was it, uh, did she have a little private meeting with somebody? There's a lot of different lords and ladies there, right? There's a, it's, it's, a, it's a who's who of Dorne is in the room. So there's a lot of ways for a secret message to be passed. Or I was talking, to, we're, we're all wondering if there's going to be some sort of betrayal of Dorne Martell. Well, this could, have, this could be a clue to that. It's a pretty vague clue if so, but it's something. Let's talk about the water gardens. This is really, really, really important. It's a massive, important, overarching theme for the entire series. And it relates to some of the most seminal moments we've discussed in the past. First of all, the history of it, the fact that it's a character named Daenerys is obviously important, y'all. That is not just, oh, let's throw another Daenerys in there. Daenerys already, our Daenerys, not this historical one, is already someone who cares a lot about children. Uh, someone who had a bit of a rough upbringing, not as rough as some of the people she's trying to take care of, but still pretty rough. And... That's something that you would, could see as something that Danny and Doran would get along on if things work out well, which I don't know that they will. But I think that's part of what George is doing here is setting up what looks like could be an alliance between these, these folks, these parties, because they have similar attitudes, but it won't actually work out for other reasons. And it's a much, much different expression of power. Consider Varus's shadow on the wall speech. This is somewhat, something of an inversion of that, right? Power is where we say it is. No one questioned that Arya isn't really Arya in the wedding last chapter because of no one dares speak that way to the Boltons. The emperor has no clothes. Think of that, that old story, that morality tale. It's a similar thing. No one's going to tell the emperor he's naked because no one wants to stand up to him. But that's the way that, that's the, the gist of that story. The emperor is like, on parade, he's naked. He doesn't know he's naked, but no one's going to tell him because no one wants to break that news to him. 
this statement is more about the power as an ethical tool. Varus talks about where power lies. He doesn't talk about how it should be used. He just talks about kind of the cynical standard view, which is, yeah, most people are going to use power for themselves. But Varus wasn't really getting at that. He's getting at where the power is and, and the perception of it. This is more of how to use power. Doran has a very ethical, very enlightened view of how to use power. It all comes down to the children. They're the realm. They're the thing the power is all about. And that's the thing that makes it all worthwhile. Protecting them, building and creating for their future is what makes it worthwhile. This is why war is so terrible. This is why war is an avoid at all cost things because they're the ones who suffer. The Sand Snakes don't get that. The Sand Snakes get things like honor and pride and their family. They're not really thinking about the small folk. They're not thinking about these children at all. It's, a real, it's super important, the, this inversion of that. He's trying to get them to see this. I don't know that they will. They're still very set on revenge, even after this speech. So that just makes it sadder for us. It makes it tragic for us. We know in the real world that Doran is a rarity, someone that really tries to use power for a good deed. Someone who sees power this way, who has this sort of enlightened view, is extremely rare. And that makes Doran very interesting, very special. And like Arya Hota, an incredible point to hold up, an incredible example to hold up against so many other characters because he's so different. It's hard to compare him except to show how much farther along he is in so many things. It's very similar again to Bloodraven. Bloodraven isn't after power for himself. He wasn't so much in life after power. He was harsh. He was ruthless, but his actions were very much in line with protecting the realm. His bottom line's about saving lives. If you have to kill people to save lives, you do it. To him, that's okay. You may disagree, I may disagree, but he was consistent with that. Doran Martell as well is consistent with not putting the children at risk, even he, though he really, really, really wants to get revenge. He's given the impression that he doesn't want it. He's given the impression that it's not important, to, even to his own family. But it's not the case. He very badly wants revenge. It's just that it's not worth getting a bunch of kids killed. Right? When you put it that way, it's like, of course. Yeah. Damn right. <laughs> but eh, we're so used to these other portrayals of power. We're just almost, it's almost a cynical view that we can't expect a person like this to exist. I mean, Ed Murtulli is maybe another example of someone sort of like this. He's not as wise about it, but he kind of gets it that the people, it's about protecting your people. It's about protecting your small folk. That's more important than your pride, your honor, your family name, uh, who killed your brother. You know, that is important, but it's not more important than protecting all these other lives that are people who are still alive. Nina writes, the conversation between Doran and Balin Swan is full of double meanings. Doran is well aware of the secret plans being made by Cersei about killing a child, that which is absolutely going to wither away at Balin's inner self. He's like, oh my God, yeah, <laughs> this is, I'm being told to do this evil thing. Balin's in, internal monologue must be just hell right now. He's got to be feeling very Jamie-like in a lot of ways where his oaths are just conflicting, where he's like, this is evil, but I took a vow to do what I was told here. Yeah, 
it's not just a colorful historical anecdote about Doran's favorite place, the Water Guards. It's like, ah, yeah, you know, it's my vacation spot. It is so much more. It's a direct message to Bale and Swan about where Martell loyalties lie with the Targaryens, with the children, with the people who are doing that sort of thing, not with the Lannister regime who are clearly willing to step over the bodies of children. They did it the first time. They're doing it again now. And by the first time, of course, I mean at the end of Robert's Rebellion. Uh, and that's why the line, the good of thousands must become before the desires of two or three or five or whatever. And he's, this is, that's in reference to Damon Blackfire and the first Daenerys and their so-called romance, which may not have really been much of a thing in the first place. But still, it's, it serves as a, as a great example for this. Arianne gets it. You're, you're, we're glad to see that Arianne has come around. From, given what we've seen here, it seems that the conversations they've had Doran letting her in on the secrets, things like that. It's really changed her mind. So we, we, we can hope maybe she's not the only one, but it could be a source of more conflict between the Sand Snakes and the, this side of the family, the Martells proper. One thing that's important is Ariel Hota himself is not aware of what all transpired between Arian and Doran. Even he doesn't know about the secrets regarding the pact with the Red Door the, the Sea Lord of Bravos and all that stuff. He doesn't really know about all that. And he doesn't know about the arrangement um, there. So he doesn't know about the promise. Uh, so that's important, maybe. Keep that in mind that Hotah isn't aware of that. Another example of the Lannisters not paying their debts, right? He, they say, oh, the Lannisters always pay their debts. <laughs> but if the skull is fake, <laughs> and if they're lying about their plans with Tristane and Marcella, which that is for sure, the skull is maybe false coin. Hotah is curious why the Sand Snakes were let out. That's another thing he's not clear on. He sees that Doran had locked them up. Then he let them out. And he doesn't know why. Again, this comes back to one of the theories we entertain for the possibility of who told, right? Someone revealed Arianne's plot. Well, one of our theories that uh, in particular Nina holds that she kind of sold me on a bit is that it was Tyene. Tyene is the one closest to Arianne. And if Tyene spilled the secret, in exchange for being set free, uh, fits. That's a that's doing a good service for Doran. You know, upending this Marcella plot. That seems like a fair exchange. So it's entirely possible. But either way, it's something that whatever went down, even Hota doesn't know. So keep that in mind as well. That might be uh, relevant later. Very curious to see how Tyene's going to handle the High Septon. Um, he's such a different kind of High Septon. He's not the kind of man that one would expect, but she is well-practiced. She knows, the, knows her business. So she could do the old demure chased thing pretty well, probably, and maybe impress him. I don't know. Very curious. Really looking forward to it, though. Nymeria as well. I wonder if she's going to play nice or if she's going to be openly aggressive towards Cersei, calling her out, or who knows? It could go a number of different ways. Really looking forward to that. A lot of potential there. So again, the palate cleanser of POVs is what I can call Hota, lightly symbolized via the description in this chapter of how the hot foods of Dorne, um, to him, they're no longer hot. He got used to it. He's not moved. He makes other things immovable. Even spicy hot foods become bland when they're faced with the force of Hota. Ha. A tree girl says, note, takes note of the line, if I were her, I'd keep my intentions hidden as long as possible to take King's Landing unaware. So she's th he's trying to suss, suss out what Daenerys' plans might be. Uh, tree girl suggests that Danny's probably going to do the opposite. Come in guns blazing very loudly. 
uh, lots of ships, dragons, news preceding her. Yeah, I think that's more likely. At this point, Danny won't be able to keep it quiet, especially if she's blowing up Volantis on the way and maybe Pentos too. There's no, there's no keeping that quiet. So yeah. Also probably not going straight to King's Landing. Dragonstone seems more likely. Stefan B points out, Ilaria uh, has Catelyn vibes. That's a great call. Yeah, very, very true. The, the voice of peace amidst so many calls for war and revenge. Also, Stefan B points out the skull is a reference to Shakespeare. You might, we, we might be wondering whether it's Gregor or, or the dwarf skull, but Stefan B says it's Yorick from Hamlet, holding it out at arm's length, even kissing it. Yeah, again, I always miss the Shakespeare references. Speaking of the skull and whether it's Gregor or the dwarf, our mod, Facebook mod Scott Wartman put up a poll. 50 of y'all said dwarf skull. 18 of y'all said Gregor. One person said 20 good men. <laughs> it's a big skull, but it's not 20 people sized. So 69 votes, nice. I tend to agree with the majority there, the dwarf skull. Yeah, I also understand why it would be weird to not send Gregor's skull. Uh, why? What's the point? Um, why do that? But I guess maybe, what do we know about necromancy? Maybe cutting the skull off is, is a problem. He'd have to sew it back on. You know, that's fine. Keep it intact. <laughs> but the other reason I think that is because of how it's described. Yeah, it's described as a gigantic skull, which argues for Gregor, right? Well, the phrasing is an enormous shelf of brow or enormous brow shelf. The phrase shelf and brow are used. There's only four times in the entire series that phrase is used, brow shelf. Enormous brow shelf or large brow shelf. Lord Godric Borel, the guy from the sisters that Davos spends time with, this, this skull, so that's two of them right there, and the other two are Penny and Tyrion. So all the times we see Gregor himself, never is his skull described this way. But Penny and Tyrion's are. So two of the three types of skulls this way are, are, are dwarf. So that kind of does argue for dwarf skull. We do have this bit about if the Sand Snakes do see death is not sacred to Adornishmen and they don't hold their vows over the Red Viper's grave, then it will be a pairing with, again, the last chapter, which was false vows to the heart tree. Then we'll have false vows to the Red Viper's skull or Red Viper's grave. We called it vows before the Red Viper's grave. We'll have to rename it false vows to align with the other one if that's what happens. And that is no sure thing, but certainly a strong possibility. And now, John 8, the one where Val is an ambassador, a.k.a. the doom of hard home. This book has the most POVs, which means less time per POV in general, but not with John, Danny, and Tyrion. John's allotment in this book is the longest any POV has in any book. Yet, other than his brief sojourn to the Grove of Nine last chapter, he doesn't leave the vicinity of Castle Black. Almost like Cersei, almost never leaving the Red Keep. The talk about Hardhome in this one is spooky and exciting and mysterious, but our curiosity around Val is pretty strong too. What's the deal with her overall as a character? What's going to happen with her in the long run? As another non-TV character, she's harder to guess at, which is, of course, a good thing. In addition to whatever's being set up with the, those plot lines, this could be called the one that sets up semantics. <laughs> John uses wordplay to get around a promise, and if we look ahead, we can see how this more minor example here might foreshadow some huge cases yet to come, ones that involve his parentage, his parents, his oath to the Night's Watch, and his death? Huh? An epic list. This all comes while feeling very simple, normal, human, non-epic feelings 
like just missing a friend. Quote, Val waited by the gate in the pre-dawn cold, wrapped up in a bearskin cloak so large it might well have fit Sam. It may never have occurred to me otherwise, but the act of paying extra attention to the first line has led us to an interesting line of thinking. How often does John think about Sam? How often does he miss him? In this book, there are several times he worries about their sea voyage and several times he misses his counsel. In this chapter, he thinks of Sam three separate times. This time with the huge cloak. I think it's as simple as him just thinking of his friend. It's a tough moment. He's concerned about this decision he's made. Val might not return. He's wary of how people react to that. That would be bad for how he's perceived as a leader and his leadership is already gone on shaky ground. It would be bad for his relationship with Stannis and he would feel guilty for getting her killed, most importantly. He's also attracted to her and thinks she's a decent person. So really, some moral support from a friend would help out here. So maybe that's why he's thinking of Sam. But again, he thinks of Sam when he's speaking with one one and learning about giants' history and culture. That's a job more suited for Sam. Not only is he better at it, more capable of catching details and asking the right questions, which John is aware of. He's like, boy, Sam would be better at this. But he's more interested in it. Sam would take to that with gusto, where for John, it's like, well, this is just something that needs to be done. It's more of a duty. I do wonder if Sam would be afraid of 1-1, but I think he'd get used to it. <laughs> that said, I'm so annoyed that John thinks he's been learning a lot about Giants history and doesn't give any of it to us. <laughs> he doesn't spare any of that for us. Come on, man, give us something. The third time is when he's explaining his hope of learning more about the Whites by potentially communicating with them. In the case with the Whites, no one understands what he's saying. They're just shocked at the concept that speaking to the dead could have any value. It makes sense to us. After all, we have seen the dead speak. Cold hands might be some other kind of magic, but it's probably similar. John makes a strong point that the first two bodies from back in the Game of Thrones seem to have memories. So learn about your enemy. Know your enemy. This, it just, yeah, it makes sense. I'd venture a guess that every single one of you listening would agree with John that this is a question worth answering that learning about how the whites work, how they function, if they have memories, things like that, there's benefit to that. Yet, it's, it's another aspect of the new difficulties to watch face that his other leaders, the other officers, are not adjusting to like he is. He's changing with the times. They're not. If Sam were there, he'd back John up. John thinks that Maester Eamon would back him up too. They'd see the value of this line of thinking, of this line of questioning, quite literally. And John has these thoughts that too bad those guys aren't here. But even as he's thinking how his friends would be helping him, he's thinking about how more of them need to be sent away. Constant disagreement, constant pushback, increasingly few people standing with him, and more and more of the, one, the few people standing with him are going elsewhere. And of course, it's not because they're abandoning him. It's because he's sending them away. It's what we've been calling the overkilling of the boy Appropriately, one of the few friends he still has around, though he's already scheduled to leave, Dolores Ed, says this. This is going to end badly. You say that of everything. I'm a lord. Usually I'm right. Of course, Ed and Iron Emmett are leaving soon too. When they come to speak with John, Bowen refuses the offer of food and drink. Kind of ominous given what's coming. Yarwick and Septon Cellar accept though, so that even though they're part of team argue against John, it doesn't mean they're on team conspirator. It doesn't mean they agreed to the stabbing. We brought it before why Septon Seldor would be a horrible guy to bring in for that anyway, because he's a drunk. Yarwick, though, interesting. Yeah, he, he might have been. But also, Yarwick's the guy who turned on Janos Slint and was like, no, I'm not supporting you, actually. <laughs> so 
he's maybe more of true neutral here. As much as you and I may agree with John on his overall plans and attitude towards the ultimate enemy, you may not agree with how he goes about talking to his subordinates. I, I do find criticism with that. That's been a running theme for us. A lot of y'all have mentioned the same things. An example, John is right that Satin has proven himself capable. He points out accurately that he's won the men over with his bravery and just by working hard and being one of them. So he's justified in being upset that men, especially officers, continue to insult him for what, is, what he was when, when that's a very hypocritical thing to do. You're supposed to forget the crimes of a person when they join the watch. And these aren't crimes. Satin didn't break any laws. He was a sex worker. That's not illegal. So it's offensive, not just angering, not just upsetting that John has to point out, look, there's a freaking serial rapist working over at the East Watch Watch by the Sea. It's offensive to compare that to a consenting sex worker. There's no remote comparison there. Yet that is what these officers, or at least this one particular officer is saying makes him worse. Like, wow. So no wonder John gets upset. No wonder it upsets readers because that is a really gross comparison, really gross justification for his attitude. But at the same time, we can afford that. We can just sit here and say, that's wrong. That's unjustified. But John's their leader. He can't just demand they be unprejudiced. I'm going to be very clear. It's not the job of every individual out there to go clear up the prejudice in others. That's a case-by-case basis kind of thing. But John's the leader of these men. It is his job to clear up their prejudice. He's the elected leader of these men. He needs to address this properly, not just tell them no. He can't just demand they be unprejudiced. That's not going to work. And he also really shouldn't be saying things like, I pray they do, when Septon Selador's like, you can't be hoping that they come, that they rise in the night. That was poor phrasing, John. Don't say, I pray the whites rise. <laughs> you know, maybe you say that a little differently. So, yeah, he's, he, his anger is maybe driving him to speak a little more flippantly, a little more, less choosing his words, not as carefully as he could. And even the argument about why the free folk need saving because they'll turn into whites. Even that wasn't, it was said well for military reasons, but it's a lax nuance. As has been said before by men like Bo and Marsh, like, so what if they're all a lot? So what if they turn to whites? They can't get us. They're still on the other side of the wall. So John is thinking more about some of the morality there, just letting them die, where Bo and Marsh is thinking about a different sort of morality because he does think that it, the, the harm will be pushed back on their people. Let's talk about Val. Val has remained pretty cool during her time at Castle Black. She's very much an avatar of her culture in a lot of ways, refuses to pray to Relore, tries to stab her prison guard, well, does stab her prison guard, doesn't kneel, things like that. The horse she's given, quote, beside her was a garen, saddled and bridled, a shaggy gray with one white eye. More one white eye or one eye thing, another one-eyed character, even though this time it's just a horse. (laughs) There's possible foreshadowing of a relationship between these two, not the horse, but but John and Val. Of course, it would be much later, I guess. Uh, Obviously, he's going to die, and I don't suppose he's going to be having any relationships immediately after that. 
Danny, of course, there's a relationship potentially in the cards for them later. So maybe it'll be much, much later. So if so, that maybe bodes well for Val. At least it would indicate that she's going to survive. Val respects John. That's really important. That's part of what makes this possible because it makes me wonder in the future, what's going to happen with Val? Is she going to interact with characters like Sansa, Arya, Osha, Rickon? You know, I'm Brienne, Sandor, Clegane. Like a bunch of characters are going to go north probably. Uh, some of those I named maybe won't. Maybe they won't survive. But Sansa, like for sure, right? She's going to go to Winterfell again. And, and if Val escapes the wall, that's a place she might go. And then Val and Sansa could hang out. They're women poised to be leaders in the aftermath of things. Uh, Sansa more for a, potentially a queen of the North. Val, not a queen. Probably not, but maybe like a leader amongst the wild, especially with so many free folk leaders likely to die, having already died. Uh, she's could be a standout. Nina notes it's sweet that Val cares about so-called monster, the son of Gillian Craster, despite the abhorrence among the free folk for incest. Egret was even horrified about just sleeping with a man in her own village. And this is a lot worse than that. Uh, yeah, so let's not forget, just because the free folk aren't high tech, they still have reasonable views on cultural standards like this. They have a basic understanding of genetics in, in that sense, a, a rudimentary understanding of, of genetic diversity is good. Val sings to the kid, makes John promise to keep him safe. She cares about this kid, right? It's clear. It's also proto-Danny vibes with Val, right? I didn't notice this. Great catch by Nina. Danny thinks of herself as mother of monsters, right? And But she's not literally the mother of those dragons. You know, she hatched them, but obviously she didn't, you know, like gestate them or whatever. And uh, it's kind of a gray area there with Danny. But still, mother of monsters is a specific phrase she thinks. And Val is kind of the adopted mother to monster, this kid that she's called monster. So, yeah, that's pretty cool. Val also warns John against Melisandre, another probably not love interest, but something that's been made a, been brought up. Maybe more of a Night Queen legendary vibe than a real, something that might really happen. But still, uh, John doesn't agree entirely and has an interesting thought here. A sword without a hilt, with no safe way to hold it. But Melisandre had the right of it. Even a sword without a hilt is better than an empty hand when foes are all around you. Mm. What this says to us is John is warming up to exactly what Melisandre wanted. Melisandre's like, he may fear me, he may despise me, but he will use me. He will use my powers. He was extremely wary of her before, but this sounds like he's, yes, it's a pun to say warming up to that. <laughs> he's realizing that, yeah, we have so few resources, we got to make use of what we have, and she is part of that. She's part of the arsenal. But that doesn't mean there won't be consequences. Personal sacrifices, sacrificing his honor, sacrificing his reputation. Remember, more loss of honor in the name of the realm. It's a thought he has in this chapter. Again, he reminds himself of a similar thing that he got from Corrin Halfhand, that his, his honor is not worth that much when framed against the realm. That's a big lesson that we just learned from Doran Martell, right, as well. Doran Martell cares about his vengeance. He cares way more about being a good ruler and protecting the children. It's not that he doesn't care about one, it's that he cares more about the other. A tool John has at his disposal here that he makes use of is semantics. Eh, think back to the promise he made with Stannis. Do I have your word that you will keep our princess closely? The king had said, and John had promised that he would. 
Val is no princess, though. I told him that half a hundred times. It was a feeble sort of evasion, a sad rag wrapped around his wounded word. His father would never have approved. A feeble sort of evasion, a sad rag wrapped around his wounded word. Maybe a paper shield, maybe? Hmm? Eh? <laughs> and of course, we can use a similar semantic trick here too. Which father would have never approved? Hmm? Rhaegar or Ned? <laughs> Rhaegar was certainly concerned with promised princes and perhaps he should have been looking for a princess. He uh, may also have been okay with getting by on exceptions and technicalities like this, especially if we're keeping mind the possibility that he had a second legal wife. Hmm? That was probably a legal technicality to pull that off if indeed it happened. But back to Ned Stark and the paper shield, he's right that Ned Stark would not have approved, but he doesn't mean he wouldn't have done it. Ned Stark absolutely used wordplay under pressure. Think back to Robert's will when Robert's dying at his bedside. He did, he's like, the king's heir instead of Prince Joffrey is what he wrote. He totally used semantics here. A little wordplay, a little legalese to change the meaning. Very similar. And what was he? And, and in, in the same case, it's Stannis both times. Ned was changing the wording to make Stannis the heir to remove Joffrey. And the guy who John is using semantics against here is Stannis. Brilliant, George. Really awesome. Nina writes Not only did Ned sacrifice his personal honor for John's own sake, too. That's something else John doesn't know about. Lying to Catelyn, pretending John's his biological son. That's not semantics. Maybe it kind of is saying he's my son, like my adopted son. He leaves that word off or something. But it's similar, right? It's a, it's a lie because his honor is less important than this child's life, right? Whatever his promise was to Liana, he kept that one. And John doesn't get to know why. It's too bad that John doesn't have this insight because John's doing the same thing. He's, he's lying to save lives. It's not for personal gain. It's not for himself. It's not to make himself look better. It's not to assuage his own guilt. There's none of that. He's trying to prevent blood, more bloodshed between the remaining free folk beyond the wall and the brothers that still live because it's more important for them to stand together against the others than to make the other's job easier by killing each other. I am the sword that guards the realms of men, John reminded himself, and in the end, that must be worth more than one man's honor. There it is. That's the line that we've been riffing off of with so many of so much of this analysis through this chapter. That's a hell of a line, Joe says. Feels like one of those ones we're going to end up referring back to a hell of a lot as foreshadowing and really opens the door on lots of different paths for John to have to do something bad or dishonorable in order to serve the greater good. This might be especially true if he returns from death as a generally darker person. The semantics come up yet again here. What I mean, though, is, yeah, I agree with Joe that it could be setting up more moral conundrums where John has to do something a little dark or maybe dishonorable in the name of the greater good. And not like Stannis greater good. I mean, like, actual greater good. Not so the right leader can be in charge, but, you know, so people's lives can be saved. The Raven. Uh, of course, the Raven is involved in this chapter, as he so often is. He says, free, corn, king. Very telling line. Usually he doesn't say one word, one word, one word. Usually he says like snow, 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 or king, 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 or corn, 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 or blood, 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 die, die, die. Those kind of things. So this is a little unusual. Uh, a couple of y'all noticed this too. Corn king is synonymous with sacrifice. That's an, uh, We've talked about that before. The Prince of Pentos is a representative of that. If the harvest fails, they kill him. It's an ancient tradition. A lot of different societies. So yes, sacrifice. It's very much a sacrifice metaphor. 
and free corn king. When John is killed, he might be free from his vows. Talk about semantics. My vows shall not end till my death. If John is killed, he has an out from his vows. Boom. So talk about semantics really coming important here. That is what that's, this may be what it's all leading up to. The Raven also steals John's bacon. I don't really know what that means, but I, I think it's endearing and fun. And there might be some symbolism there. I, I'm not sure what, but <laughs> if y'all have something for me, please let us know because, uh, you know, we're very interested in birds and bacon. John thinks of dragons in this chapter as Val warns him about Mel's capabilities and what she sees in the flames. Kings and dragons. Dragons again. For a moment, John could almost see them too, coiling in the night their dark wings outlined against a sea of flame. Mmm, wow. Yeah, so more dragon vibes from John. I think we can, we have a pretty good sense of why. Maybe there's something more specific than just foreshadowing who John is, but uh, I don't have anything in particular in mind to say about that other than that. It is weird for Val to mention that, though. Coming from her, it's a little peculiar. But John shrugs off the line along with the idea Melisandre could know the truth about the baby switch. Because she... We brought this up several chapters ago. Val thinks Mel Sunder knows about the baby swap. John isn't so sure because he thinks she would have a reaction. But Val's like, no, she doesn't. That's not, that's not, there's no sure reason to think that. She wouldn't necessarily react to that because, well, you just don't know what she's thinking. I tend to agree with Val on that. Okay, hard home. Big deal here. We've been hearing about Mother Mole since the prologue. After all, Veramir has had the prologue and it comes up there. So this hard home thing is building up the whole book. Uh, but this story extends farther than you may have noticed. Let's jump ahead a few chapters to the blind girl chapter, which we'll be dealing with next week, where there's a nice long quote. After the big battle where the king beyond the wall was killed, the wildlings ran away. And this woods witch said that if they went to hard home, ships would come and carry them away to someplace warm. But no ships came, except these two Lyseni pirates, Goodheart and Elephant, that had been driven north by a storm. They dropped anchor off Hardhome to make repairs and saw the wildlings, but there were thousands and they didn't have room for all of them. So they said they'd just take the women and the children. The wildlings had nothing to eat, so the men sent out their wives and daughters but as soon as the ships were out to sea, the Lyseni drove them below and roped them up. They meant to sell them all in lease. Only then, they ran into another storm and the ships were parted. The good heart was so damaged, her captain had no choice but to put in here, but the elephant may have made it back to lease. The Lyseni at Pinto's think that she'll return with more ships. The price of slaves is rising, they said, and there are thousands more women and children at Hardhome. It's a, there's a small chance we'll see some of these hapless former free folk who are now slaves if Danny goes to lease or if any of these play, people end up elsewhere. But Mother's Mole's vision was indeed true in a tragic sort of way. The land across the narrow sea that she saw was apparently lease. An island place so nice it was designated by the Valyrian Freehold as like the party spot for dragon lords and powerful nobles. So, you know, it's nice there. <laughs> Whatever the truth of it, though, the bottom line is this hard home is considered cursed and bad news. Yet still, these free folk went there. They still had faith that this prophecy was going to accurate, be accurate and they would have a way out. Of course, they didn't have many other options. This 
flimsy prophecy is better than sticking around and facing the others or winter. Uh, and John is sending more ships himself. So in that quote, it says, but no more ships came, but they are going to come. So it's a tragic example of a vision with, uh, with fine print that no one was able to read. Uh, the clause is slavery. Yes, they, they were carried away someplace warm, but uh, to be slaves. Hmm. Here in this chapter two, though, it isn't just build up on updating us what's happening at Hard Home. Rather, we get a story about the history of Hard Home some 600 years ago. Despite it being that long ago, it really enhances the feel of this place. I mean, screaming caves, ash raining down for half a year mingled with snow, nightmarish devastation, a landscape of charred trees and burned bones. It sounds like a volcano. Shout out to Nobody Suspects the Butterfly on Tumblr. Nina points out a theory from her that the hard home disaster was a massive geothermal event. I, certainly, that's what a volcano is. Um, maybe she's giving a little broader category. I think a volcano is a type of geothermal event. So she's leaving room for it to be something other than a volcano, but something in that category. This is not terribly surprising. We've got geothermal activity under Winterfell. You know, the hot springs are coming from the fires of the earth down below. A huge conflagration so bright that the brothers on the wall thought it was the sun. You know, yeah, that, that really does sound volcanic, right? It sounds a little bit like the doom of Valyria. Some of the same language is being used. There may even be some evidence of this theory from George's own travels. Nina notes a Sospakes Martin from 2004 where George went to New Zealand and Rotura Park, full of geysers, natural hot springs, bubbling mud, and the smell of sulfur. And George said that it inspired a location that would appear in the books. At the time, he said that location hadn't appeared yet, but will in time, and that was 2004. So he couldn't have been talking about, say, Dragonstone, because we had already seen Dragonstone, but we hadn't seen this yet. So this is entirely possible for what he's talking about. Or maybe it's something we haven't seen yet, still. Also, I think it's important to mention, um, you're talking about this geothermal event yeah. here up at Hardhome that Nina brought up that that would be a good explanation for why there's a bunch of obsidian up there. Oh, that's a great point. Yeah, very true. It also just makes sense why people would want to live there. Yes, John also points out it's a safe harbor. It's a nice spot in terms of a port. But also, heck, if you got natural warmth nearby in the north, like that's a prime location, right? The prime real estate, which is maybe why it was destroyed. Halfway towards becoming a town, it's pretty conspiratorial to think someone triggered this event but it's not out of the line of possibility. One theory I don't like is that it was a test run for the Doom. I don't think that theory has a lot of merit because personally, I think the Doom happened because of the assassination of sorcerers who were holding the, the, the flames back rather than some sort of, rather than that the faceless men are capable of generating a volcano. That doesn't really line up with their capabilities. Assassination does. <laughs> uh, on the other hand, the children of the forest live down in those caves. They've got magic. If they could break the arm of Dorne, if they could cause flooding in the neck, causing a volcano is certainly possible. And hey, if this is their realm beyond the wall, no towns. <laughs> Keep those towns from forming. We can't have that. So hmm. on the other hand, as a pushback against some of these theories, this business about people being slaughtered for meat and sold into slavery 600 years ago that doesn't really connect to any volcano business, although maybe it's just uh, people taking advantage of the chaos. It also could just be more examples of rumors growing over time, and there's not a lot of truth to the cannibalism stuff. But, heck, 
we're seeing those things now. People were sold into slavery now at Hard Home, and people are starving and probably eating the dead as well. So you can see where the rumors came from. There's a strong grain of, grain of truth there. Val's questioning of, of John about Jarl's death. Uh, Stanton's stark haha contrast to what we saw in the last chapter with the cycles Jarl of vengeance. Again. I did say Jarl. 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 <laughs> to what we saw in the last chapter with the cycles of vengeance. Val's attitude is straightforward and not at all vengeful. She simply wants to know if John killed him. And when John says he didn't, she accepts it without anger or suspicion. She, she trusts John. She respects him. So she believes he would tell the truth there. But yeah, it, it's a great point. She isn't looking to take revenge. Um, she doesn't seem like she would have done so even if he had admitted that it was him, which it wasn't. So why would he say that? Say that? But if it had been, she gets it. She's like, look, you had to do what you had to do. He had to do what he had to do. And there's no, no hate. There's no vindictiveness. It's just life. As far as Satin goes, this is another little more on Satin. Uh, a little issue with John's reading of the situation is John himself was told that when he was made steward, it's because they were grooming him for command. And they complain that they're making a guy, that John's making a guy that men don't want to follow into, a, into grooming him for command. And, Sam, and John's like, I'm not grooming him for command. He's just going to get my, fetch my water and do my tent and things like that. That's not a good answer from John, really, because whether it's true or not, I, I don't know that John is grooming Satin for command. But that is usually what that office is for. And whether John's doing that or not, people are going to think it, right? And John is just stubbornly making them accept Satin rather than telling them why Satin's good, explaining it and making them, uh, bringing them over, winning them over as to why he's worthy. So he could have done a better job. He could have made the same arg argument that he made about, look, we're supposed to, you took the vows too. Satin took the vows. He's not, you know, he's a different person now, et cetera. But anyway. Amy Blackfire, Super Chats. Thanks for your hard work. It's Ethan Shea. Don't forget to hit that like. Yeah, thanks for that, Amy. Please do hit the like button. It really does help us show up on the algorithms. YouTube is such a vast sea of options. Same goes for the podcast world. If you give us a like, a, a five-star rating, hopefully, or whatever rating you think we deserve, <laughs> and a review, it really, really does make a difference. Uh, Septon Selador appeared confused and groggy and in dire need of some scales from the dragon that had flamed him, is a quote. And that is a little joke from George. That is a reference to the earthbound phrase, hair of the dog that bit him, which is, it's a hangover phrase. If you aren't aware, sometimes people have another drink in the morning after waking up drunk or hungover because it helps get rid of the hangover. Archmaester Rennie points out Jamie's vibes here. Uh, John with his conflicting oaths. Um, yeah, good point there. Yeah, definitely Jamie vibes. I got Val vibes from Jamie. I did a parallel lives example on Twitter. Um, all the things they have in common. And I wonder if that's another one that might happen. Jamie and Val could meet. I don't know that that would be a particularly meaningful or exciting meeting, but it might be. I don't know, you know? Worth considering, perhaps. And Tree Girl points out that maybe John's death could give Val an opportunity to peace out, maybe to go south or something. I don't know. To make it, to organize people or to, to emerge as a leader. Certainly there's Night Queen symbolism around her as well. Uh, there's more around Melisandre probably. But we know how these things are never one-to-one -one relationships. There's never just one. Well, sometimes there is. There's often not just one. <laughs> Rolling Knight points out a little odd, maybe unfortunate prejudice from John 
John is, of course, not prejudiced on one one compared to everybody else. But he he talks about one one simplicity and compares him to Hodor a bit, which is that's not the best way to compare make a comparison. But what George might be after with that comparison is reminding us of the possibility that there really is giant's blood within the human race. There might have been some mixing and uh, all that. It's a kind of an under the radar mystery whether there's giant's blood in people out there. Guinevere Greenstones wonders about the, the talk about Hardhome and gives it as an example of more rumors and prejudice in play. Uh, the, the exaggerations about what happened there have probably grown over time, very similar to how people view the giants about them being cannibals when they're, I mean, cannibals slash meat eaters when they appear to be vegan, vegetarian. Uh, ditto, wild, lots of different rumors about the wildlings and ditto... The wildlings having rumors about the watch. It's just the same theme of exaggeration uh, about people, things that they don't know about. Fits really well. Great catch by Sophia um, comparing the sunrise trick. Another evidence this is a volcano this is what happened because when Tyrion, in Tyrion 8, when he's passing Valyria, he's confused for a moment because he's like, wait, what direction are we facing? The sun is rising where? It's the same description here that the brothers on the wall looked like the sun was rising in the north for a good six months. So false sunrise based on a likely geothermal event. And that's it for John 8. Tyrion 9. The storm in the flames, aka the stinky steward smells a slaver. This one and a few others have a real transitional and or montage feel to them, especially here in the middle of the book where several arcs have ended and a few others are just getting started. After all, Davos spent a long time in prison, only for his arc to end. Bran saw many moons pass by. His arc ended. Arya is going to have a chapter that spans a lot of time next week. And here, Tyrion and crew have a chapter where over a month passes. One of the very strong aspects of this chapter is George's brilliant descriptions of the storm itself. It's one of the joys of rereading just the way he uses metaphor to make these visual wonderlands. It's beautiful. I don't have a lot of specifics to say about that. It's one of those things that you just lay back and enjoy and just go, man, this guy is damn good at what he does. I'm glad we're all here. Tyrion thought he had seen storms before and he thought he understood what Benero meant by this ship not reaching Karth. The truth turns out far more severe in both cases. This is the kind of storm that I think about when considering the one that gave Danny her nickname. Supposedly, pieces of dragonstone flew off and all the ships at anchor were smashed to kindling. Kind of like the mast here, I guess. Uh, maybe that one was even stronger because this ship actually survived, whereas that one destroyed a whole bunch of them. On the heels of that storm, Danny went into exile and semi-slavery. Similarly, this storm will lead to slavery for Tyrion and Penny and Jorah. And just in time for that, he's been having a series of humbling experiences. So why not go all the way with the humbling experiences like this one? The sow had a sweeter temper than some horses he had ridden. Tyrion is a reader. He has a strong and active imagination. This time he pictures himself as his brother. A poignant moment and one likely very familiar. It's not uncommon for little brothers to look up to their big brothers. And for Tyrion and Jaime, that, that effect is multiplying. As famous and expert as Jaime was at being a knight, well, jousting is a purely knightly contest. They don't have jousting elsewhere. Only knights do that, except for <laughs> cases like this where it's a mock joust. But even though they're, even here, they're dressing up like knights. Even though falling is part of the show, even though they're supposed to laugh at Tyrion, that's the point. They're supposed to laugh. Tyrion is just, he's so used to that being 
the worst thing. Being laughed at is what he was taught is bad. Yet it was a bad lesson for Tywin to teach Tyrion because, well, you're going to go through life being laughed at because that's the way it is. It's a sad moment for Tyrion's arc, Nina writes, because he really is, he does really feel like Jamie. It almost seems silly that he does, but it's true. And, and it just calls back what a lot of Tyrion's entire life and how he's felt about himself and his brother. Jamie was the golden Lannister ideal and the best member of his family on a personal level, the guy that actually respected him, that actually loved him, unlike everyone else except for maybe Jarian. But Jarian was gone pretty early on uh, and no longer there to have Tyrion's back. And of course, Tyrion is still very hurt by what happened at the end of A Storm of Swords. He's still angry at Jamie. So having these thoughts is really meaningful that he's not thinking of his anger towards Jamie in this moment. So he's able to grasp intellectually what's happening. He knows that people are going to have a show. That's why he backs down. At first, he's like, no way. I'm never riding that pig. He's thinking back to the Purple Wedding and how it was, uh, it's going to be so embarrassing, how Joffrey was trying to force him to do that, how Tywin would never consent to this, how Tywin, of all people, is against it. It's just, it was drilled into him to not be laughed at. As we've seen, as we'll see with Cersei, Cersei's going to get laughed at in her walk of shame. It's death to authority. It's death to power. You can't be laughed at and give orders. There's, that line is specifically mentioned. It's hard to take orders from a man you've laughed at while in your cups. Unlike Theon, who thinks that he's suffered so much that laughter can't hurt him anymore, Tyrion still has pride. His father and the Purple Wedding, again, those were recent. But he's been laughed at his whole life. Not just then. So submitting to it voluntarily is really hard for him emotionally. Penny says to him at one point, didn't your father ever tell you how to act with big people? Indeed he did, but it's the entire opposite of what way Penny was taught by her parents. It included not performing. Penny was like, you have to make them laugh. You have to be what you are. You have to fit in with the world. You can't change it. We're small people. We have, we're powerless. How are you going to fight back? You got to give them what they want the Zen of Penny. We talked about the Zen of Hotah. This is the Zen of Penny. The slow build of their situation and Tyrion's sensitivity to crowds, though, that's what he remembers. The riot. He's sensitive to, to what happens. That starts to ebb away at his pride and, and he consents eventually. But he still doesn't fully get it. Like we said, it's a tough adjustment for him. And when he has this argument with Jorah right afterwards, right? Jorah smacks him in the face. Both, you get a sense that well, yeah, Jorah's still bitter and angry and Jorah kind of sucks, but what are you doing, Tyrion? <laughs> like, why are you talking that way to Jorah? Like, it's just a bad idea. And Penny says the same thing. You mustn't mock him. Don't you know anything? You can't talk that way to a big person. They can hurt you. Sir Jorah could have tossed you in the sea. The sailors would have laughed to see you drown. You have to be careful around big people. Be jolly and playful with them. Keep them smiling. Make them laugh. That's what my father always said. Didn't your father ever tell you how to act with big people? Yeah, it's superb insight into how she's been raised and how different the world looks to her, even though they share such a key similarity physically. And he thinks to himself, I have a deal to learn about being a dwarf. He's not being sarcastic. I mean, he is a little bit, but he's not wrong, right? 
his upbringing as a dwarf is nothing like normal, right? Normally, they're killed at birth or not acknowledged or something like that. That's what he thinks. He thinks that's normally what happens. That's when, when noble families have this. They kill the kid. And his father basically put him in this weird halfway spot where he's supposed to be ashamed of being a dwarf, but also to deny that he is one. Which, that is not embracing who you are, which is what Tyrion tells pretty much everybody else. Be who you are. The world won't let you forget it. Yet, Penny's the one teaching him this very lesson that he taught to John back in, what was it, John Three, a Game of Thrones, really long back when they're on their way to the wall. It might even be John two. I'm not. I think it's John three. Anyway, it's it's brilliant how this is being called back and how George speaks to our own inability to see ourselves. Even as we maybe give great advice to others, we don't always take it or see it. Uh, and a lot of that's because of our own upbringing and because of what people taught us when we were impressionable. And it creates these inconsistencies. These things that don't line up, these uh, exceptions. So it's really quite interesting. I think this is, this is a chapter is very transitional, but it's still very strong and has a lot of powerful themes. It's pretty amazing that Tyrion refused doing all this back in King's Landing, not wearing the armor, not riding the pig, only to end up riding the exact same pig and exact armor in the Gulf of Grief. <laughs> You know, it's, it's one thing for him to have done it in Westeros, but geez, yeah. And Penny's optimism is really something too. She maintains hope, uh, even though uh, she's lost so much. Doing her job, right, being entertaining, kind of puts her back in a pretty good space, headspace. She's, you know, puts her in a pretty good mood. She's performing, right? It's what she's good at. Uh, she's learned to do it. Doing the things we're used to, there's something therapeutic in that. And it's also kind of an irony that this is being taken as slaves. It's actually going to kind of work out for them because how else are they going to get to Danny? Like even, this, they couldn't have done the switch sellsword company thing that Quentin did because who's going to hire them as sellswords? Well, the second sons will. <laughs> but <laughs> under entirely different circumstances. <laughs> And, and Tyrion also brings up a point to Jorah. That's one of the things that upsets Jorah is uh, calling him out for his lack of forethought. Saying, look, man, you really think Danny's going to receive you the way you think? Maybe you didn't think this through. Maybe, you, oh, maybe you did it drunkenly in desperation. I don't know that I mentioned, brought that up as a, a point enough at the time that Jorah claiming Tyrion and capturing him was a spur of the moment decision when he was wasted. <laughs> and so now that he's sober, it's like, ugh, well, I'm committed to this. But yeah, I see his point. Danny is just as likely to cut my head off and keep Tyrion rather than the other way around, if not more so. And Tyrion doesn't know. He's figured it out. We know he's right. He's probably more right than he knows. She is more likely to kill Jorah than him. Although, honestly, she's not that likely to kill either. Another important moment, really important under the radar moment happens in this, in this chapter. If we're looking forward to what kind of man Tyrion's going to be, I know it's popular to see Tyrion as going real dark, but I want to push back on that. I'm open to it, but I want to push back on it. This chapter gives us a lot of reason to think that's not how it's going, that we have maybe gone too far with that estimation. Maybe there's going to be some of it. Maybe he's still going to be really vicious to Cersei or other members of his family. But lines like, 
a little kindness. Everyone deserves that much, however big or small. That is not the kind of thing a future murderous, angry killer thinks. These are not the thoughts of someone who is getting ready to be bloody, right? I mean, it could, things could change. Lots, we've got lots more chapters before they get to King's Landing. Lots could change. In this moment, this is, he's sentimental, he's kind, he's chivalrous almost to Penny. It just doesn't feel like the dark turn stuff that we've been seeing elsewhere. It feels like this is something entirely opposite of that. So, yeah, so keep that in mind. You know, if he's going to use a high position with Danny to enact revenge and wreak destruction, well, maybe this is a pushback against that. On the other hand, power. Power, power, power. It all comes down to power very often, doesn't it? And Tyrion has none right now. Give him power again. Maybe he changes. Maybe that seduces him back to the dark side. Uh, It very well could be that. Right now, he's as powerless as he's ever been, and maybe that's why he's being a little nicer. Maybe his circumstances have a lot to do with it. Give him the ability to command armies and dragons, and maybe maybe he doesn't look so good anymore. Tyrion dreams of killing his father, as always. But this time, the, the dream morphs into Penny. I don't think this is like he's going to murder Penny, by no means. I think he's, Job suggests maybe he's contemplating giving her the gift of mercy before things get worse, and the sailors turn on her, and things like that. Or, you know, he doesn't want her to starve to death. Or he thinks that his actions are going to get her killed. He's, it's guilt. It's him thinking, oh, her being with me is, I'm the responsible for all her woes. So it's also notable, too, that we, we pointed out that it's meaningful for someone like Tyrion. He himself has been the target of so much contempt for being a dwarf, from his father, etc. So it is notable that he doesn't turn around and reflect that on her. So often, it's a, a phrase that I believe in, maybe it's a bit cliche, is that hurt people hurt people, right? If you, people who are hurt, especially emotionally, turn that around on other people very often. Not always, certainly not always. But it's notable that Tyrion isn't doing that. He doesn't. He has some contempt for her when he first meets her, but he, it's, it's ebbing away. He, he's learning better. Dragons and turning on his family have long been foreshadowed for him. These have been present since the start, his first chapters. But so has his so-called soft spot for, quote, cripples, bastards, and broken things, right? Again, think of dark turn Tyrion, and then think to building a saddle for Bran. There's no, he didn't have an ulterior motive there. That wasn't about power. That wasn't about trying to get in good with the Starks so he could get something from them. No, that was just Tyrion being decent. Kinship with Bran. Yeah. Speaking of his own worth, note how he judges himself when Penny kisses him. He decides she's not really that into him because there's no lust. And this is, again, his upbringing, his self-perception. He's falling into that common trap. A lot of people do it. Thinking that lust and love are intertwined. Not always, sometimes, but often they have nothing to do with each other at all. It's good he doesn't hate her because in the past we've seen him loathe people who loathe him. Uh, It's one of the ways his contempt manifests back into the world. Like we were saying, it's one of the ways he turns the dark, the hatred he's received back out onto the world is things like this. So it's again notable that he doesn't do it here. Let's turn to Makoro though. Makoro appears to basically confirm the storm is like, yep, this is the storm that, uh, that we saw in the flames, that Venera saw in the flames. This is the real reason the ship's never going to reach Karth. Tyrion has a sinking feeling haha, about that. 
never get involved in visions and prophecies. Another lesson for that. <laughs> Politics are difficult, Joe writes, but this is worse. Makoro did see or reveals that Benero saw this storm in the flames. Uh, again, what an incredible level of faith it takes to use this as your method of changing ships. Like, yeah, I'm going to get swept overboard and then chill in the water for 10 days. <laughs> and the fiery hand, his five fingers, like two of them get swept overboard too. And I guess they just die because they don't turn up again. So their faith is even stronger maybe. <laughs> or they're stupider. I don't know. I don't know where to draw. I don't know how to characterize faith that strong. I wonder what sort of magic Makoro was using during the storm, Nina writes, that he had something protecting him. It was obvious. Like he's chanting and, and praying into the storm. Like he's standing there on deck, like knowing what's going to happen, but maybe there's some magic to help him survive. I mean, Melisandre says she doesn't need to eat or drink. She just does it to kind of make, it look, make herself look normal. But still, there's a possibility of some magic here. Perhaps, too, we're meant to contrast Makoro's unwavering, long-held faith with Penny's innocent hopefulness, which is itself a form of faith. By the same token, perhaps Makoro's beliefs are meant to be seen as a form of naivete as well, right? Turn that around. Though it doesn't look that way now, <laughs> he seems to know exactly what's happening. <laughs> Ten days he spends in the water before the Iron Fleet finds him, which does give us a reckoning on where the Iron Fleet is. Not that far from here. As bad as Jorah is, even he softens somewhat this chapter. He argues with Tyrion and hits him, but seems willing to forget about it later. More importantly, he speaks up about the dangers of the crew towards Penny and her animals, which is really a big deal because those aren't just her pets, those are her livelihood. They're trained, they are, you know, her job. So every once in a while, Jorah seems to remember he's a knight, even if it's only for, you know, a minute or two at a time. Such a big change to the mood when the wind picks up. And again, it's Penny's excitement and uh, pureness that warms Tyrion's heart a bit. Yeah, again, she, she's like the, uh, she is kind of like Hotah here. Her pureness is like his clean slate, um, unmovability. You wonder too, Tyrion has been against magic. He's downplayed it so much. He's seen, been seeing recently things that have changed his mind, but this doesn't exactly argue for trusting prophecy. It tells him it's real, but Mm, yeah, that's something for him to keep in mind. And the reason that's so relevant is he's going to be around Tyrion, uh, Danny probably, and so will Makoro probably. They may come all back together, and first, not only will Tyrion's mind be blown that this dude's still alive. Like, what? I saw you go off. Like, how? <laughs> that, on one hand, will convince him more of magic. On the other hand, Danny's going to be moved by prophecy. People like Quaith and Makoro are going to try to be pushing her to be more religious, to follow these dictates. Tyrion might be the voice saying, don't do that. Nina writes, Pretty Pig is the dark, ironic flip side to Dancer Bran's horse. Tyrion had suggested back in a Game of Thrones that Bran be given that smart horse trained from a young age to respond to his voice in the reins. Part of the, it's part of the whole thing with the saddle. It wasn't just the saddle. It was a training procedure as well. A whole, whole plan, whole strategy. At, same deal with this pig. Likewise trained since it was a piglet to wear a saddle and bridle except a rider. So kind of a little parallel there. Tyrion riding is a oddly fitting for what, uh, where, from where he started. Nina mentions the storm in this chapter is also, in addition to maybe being similar to the storm that gave Danny her nickname, it's similar to the storms that we see in Fire and Blood with Eustace Hightower and Alyssa Farman and Norman Hightower. So check out our episode on the Sun Chaser for more detail on that. It even has mention of Krakens and 
stuff like that. Very cool. Very fun episode, I think. If I do say so myself. <laughs> Jorah notes he's seen worse jousters than Tyrion. Uh, he, there might be some deep sarcasm given he tried to be like attorney circuit night. He was a, you know, a, going around doing all sorts of jousting and trying to make a name for himself. And uh, he may have been thinking of himself. <laughs> he may be even saying, uh, you know, I, I thought I was great, but, you know, maybe kind of a rueful comment on his own success there. A lack of success, really. He makes that comment about getting a splinter in the eye and dying, which is a peculiar note. He almost gets a, tear, a splinter in his eye during the storm. It's noted that uh, one misses his eye by half an inch. But also Nina writes that Henry II of France got a splinter in the eye in jousting in the year 1559, and it did kill him seven days later. Oh, man, rough. Good chance George knows about that one. George is pretty well versed in uh, medieval anecdotes. So entirely possible he chose that as the inspiration for this. Tyrion calls the thick band of clouds a bar sinister and declares it means some big bastard is behind him. This is wordplay, heraldry joke, uh, which, of course, like lot, lots of Tyrion's jokes and references to come in my castle and things like that, go right over Penny's head, which is not a height joke. It's a joke about him only knowing things that come from growing up highborn, not having things to relate to her over and continuously falling back into that pattern because he doesn't know what else to do. So anyway, the joke is that bastard lines are often added to sigils called bend sinister, sometimes called bar sinister because of a French translation. Anyway, it doesn't, that part doesn't matter. But you see that in other places around Westeros. And uh, that's kind of funny. He's some big bastard behind them. But also Victorian's behind them. He's not a bastard, but he is big. And he is coming. A few of you pointed out that this is yet again another mention of Jerrion Lannister. He keeps coming up. There's got to be some payoff there with as many times as he's been mentioned. I tend to agree. I wouldn't entirely get my hopes up on that but I tend to agree that this many mentions seems not unlikely. Tree Girl points out that, yeah, the, I, may, I pointed out that arguably Tyrion's behavior towards Penny in this chapter is chivalrous in a way, which is very appropriate given that he's playing the role of a knight, even though it's just a, uh, a play knight. So that's pretty cool. Again, someone being more knightly than real knights. That theme returns. The Turn Cloak. The Heart Tree weeps, a.k.a. return to the crypts of Winterfell. On the heels of a huge storm at sea in Tyrion 9, this one has a persistent snowstorm, which is going to continually get worse as well. Just as that chapter had a lull in the chaos when the Selasori Corrin sat in the eye of that raging storm, so does Theon get a break from the raging storm of Ramsay, while the rest of the castle sits and eats and stays warm and listens to music. Doesn't sound so bad, but you know, it too is a lull, and it's worse than it seems. It's perhaps an unfair description of how intense it really is, though. Jane does indeed rhyme with pain, and her suffering is nothing like a lull. She's deep in it. It's a lull for Theon, not for everyone else. Theon collapses in prayer in front of the heart tree and seems to cry with him. The tree does, or something. And that's intense, too. What the heck is going on? Is that friend? Theon Turncloak also could be called Theon Tour Guide. In this one, he does a circuit around the castle. His familiarity with the place is on display and an important aspect of the chapter culminating in a visit to the crypts, which, of course, happens in part because he's one of the only ones who knows where it is. If that was the only thing in this chapter, it would be important, meaning that visit to the crypts. But of course, it's not. Amidst this look back into ancient Stark history, we have more recent Stark history, 
through Lady Dustin's personal relationships. Very revelatory, very interesting, very important. White snow may be everywhere and covering everything, but the future isn't so bright. This mood is reflected well by the first sentence. The first flakes came drifting down as the sun was setting in the west. Another amazing first sentence. Snow falling amidst a setting sun. A simple, powerful way to say winter is coming. Highly appropriate for a chapter featuring a visit to the crypts of Winterfell, where so many Starks ruled during so many winters. Theon thinks his sun has set as well. He considers escape, but decides he has nowhere to go. Still, it's notable that he's even thinking about it. He wouldn't have been even thinking about escape not that long ago, given what happened with Kyra, given his fears of Ramsay. So again, we're seeing some restoration, some growth, some Theon returning to being Theon. Again, this chapter is the Turncloak, not Reek 5. Of course, there's no Reek 4 either. We had the Prince of Winterfell. So he's less and less Reek. This ruined castle, as unwelcome as it is to him specifically and his kind generally, is he realizes his place. So it's a little column A, little column B. Yes, Winterfell is not friendly to Ironborn, but it is the place he grew up. There's a lot of familiarity with it. They think of the concept of true winter. We'll see the truth of that when we return to Asha's POV on the march. But that doesn't mean Winterfell won't suffer too. Right now, they're all, they feel very confident of victory. They have their food, their drink, it's warm. Over the next two chapters, we'll find out what a false hope that is. We won't have to wait too long for winter to truly show it means business and half-strength Winterfell isn't going to cut it. This is also our way to see the cracks are appearing in the Bolton Alliance. Freys are upset about their missing kin. They're kind of sitting apart from everybody else. It's really cold. They're not used to this. Still, there's a strong point uh, about from Lady Dustin about Ari. Again, even what good does it do to have her look like a Stark if everyone thinks she's suffering and in pain? Again, he, she reminds what she said before and using different words is that they love the Starks. She's an exception, but so many of them love the Starks and it just isn't going to work if, you know, Ramsey pushes them too far. He is not playing this game well. He is playing it like the shadow on the wall is a lot taller than it is. He thinks they can't call him out, but that shadow is smaller than it is and it might be evidence... <laughs> It may only take putting out a candle to get rid of that entire shadow. The opposite of Illyrio and the Targaryens, basically, you can say. The lies that Illyrio told to Viserys about how they're sowing dragon banners in secret, how they yearn for a return of the Targaryens, that was a lie. But when it comes to the Starks in the North, it's true. And there's a reason for that. The Targaryens weren't that special as far as setting themselves up for long-term rule and doing well. They're notable. They're historic. They're outstanding. But if you look at their reign, why would people be like, oh yeah, we got to do that again? You can see why some people prefer it, but it's not a slam dunk. Yes, the Targaryens have always been great. The Starks, for the most part, have been. There's been definitely been exceptions there. But the Starks have done the thing that has been most important. Kept the North alive through all these winters, led them through all that. They've proven their worth over a much longer period of time then we would be talking about the Targaryens for, too. And this is part of what people like Wyman Manderley are banking on, this uh, love of the Starks, this uh, attitude that is simmering under the surface. Reminds us, too, of the concept of Knights of Summer 
We have the Lords of Winter here, snowmen being built, acting out these roles. The human element is, is big here. Yeah, the Boltons are evil, but not everyone in these armies are evil. Not everyone here is a bad guy. A lot of these folk are just doing what they have to do. And you see this, you know, them acting like people, like playful, building snowmen. Like that's not something you associate with Bolton soldiers. So it's important to remind us that, yeah, these are just small folk conscripted to fight in an army that they can't stand up against it. They can't do anything about that. Very important to remember things like that, that these are just other people out there. And that is part of why it really just takes a little bit of pushing. Yeah, if, as Justin Massey will tell Asha next chapter, that, you know, all I got to do is make Bolton look like he's losing and everyone will desert him. But as Asha thinks in response, how are you going to do that? <laughs> it's it's going to be hard to make it look like Bolton's losing. So the under, under a ra- and under the radar theme here is by calling Theon a turncloak against the Starks, they're implying a thing or two about fostering in general and nature versus nurture. Because like, wait, how could he be an ironborn and a turncloak against the Starks? Well, because he pledged to follow Rob Stark. That's something. He was raised there. But still, they're kind of saying, look, you were raised here. This is your home. You grew up here. You turned on these people. That's dark. That's evil. Uh, it does kind of touch on John being a, a son of Ned, even if he's not his sire, things like that, because Theon was, was brought up in this same spot. And that builds to this in, enormous moment where Theon admits the truth of it when Lady Dustin pins him to it, says, yeah, okay, I hate the Starks because I wanted to be one. And she agrees that they have more in common than he might realize, meaning the same thing. She wanted to be a Stark too. And then, of course, she gets into why. Uh, it, it provides a much different view, right? These outsiders to the Stark, those, these almost Starks. There's more of them than we thought. John, Theon, but also Lady Dustin. There's probably some other ones out there too. You can't break those barriers. You can be right there, but you can't cross that line. You can't actually be a Stark. It's a pretty major moment for the fandom to hear these details from Lady Barbary. Like, wow. Brandon and Barbary and... Rickard and this conspiracy, he, you know, she brings up the maesters last time and now follows up on that. She lost the man she loved thanks to Rickard or never got a chance to love the second man. Catelyn takes him too. A lot of bitterness. It's very apparent. Good reasons for some of that bitter. Some of it's a little like, well, it's not Catelyn's fault. She had as much say over the situation as you did. Nevertheless, those are a rough set of circumstances. That would feels pretty unlucky. And, you know, she was a teenager probably when she was hanging out with Brandon and her, it was probably her first love. So you can't r- rationalize your way out of those feelings. And she's never had anything to replace it with, right? She married her husband. He went off to war, didn't come back. Does she know specifically what happened to him? Is this why she wants Eddard's bones? Because she know, she figured out, I mean, she knows that his bones are buried in the Red Mountains of Dorne. And she might be like, what the hell is he doing down there? Why was he in the Red Mountains of Dorne when the war was basically over? That would just add to her bitterness to find out that, wait, my husband died looking for your sister? Right? Like, that would add to it all, you know? So, uh, um, as the chapter unfolds, the snow becomes more and more intense. Beyond the walls, as far as he could see, the world was turning white. The woods, the fields, the king's road, the snows were covering all of them beneath a 
pale, soft mantle burying the remnants of the winter town, hiding the blackened walls Ramsay's men had left behind when they put the houses to the torch. The wounds snow made, snow conceals. But that was wrong. Ramsay was a Bolton now, not a snow. Never a snow. Mm. Yeah, he's a snow. Yeah, he's a snow. <laughs> he thinks that Ramsay is leaving him alone for now, but only temporarily. He'll get bored of his new wife. But that makes him a little guilty too, because he's like, well, my respite is her suffering. I think that might be part of what leads him eventually to, to help her and to rescue her. So does her pleading with him. So does just her awful state. And it brings out what strength he still has left. People talk about how she's chained to the bed. Uh, it's a rumor. Theon knows better that it's not necessary. He knows that Ramsay's, the threats that Ramsay can give, physical intimidation, actual violence, you don't need chains when you have that. Besides, Theon has been assigned to her in a, in a way to watch over her a bit too. And he's kind of, it's yet another way for Ramsay to mock his status, to make him a handmaid. But of course, Theon doesn't really, isn't really that bothered by it. And she doesn't even care anymore. She's like already breaking down on, on pretending to be Arya. She wants it to be over. She would rather die. She's very broken. It's really tragic. Uh, she's weeping and, and begging for mercy. And he, at, for now, he's incapable. Of course, he will gain some strength over the next few chapters before the climactic moment there. But for now, he, what he sees is far too similar to what he is. She's becoming what he became down in the Dungeons of the Dreadfort, something that only he can sympathize with out of so many other people there. And it's just so horrible to see him, for him to see that. He doesn't, and he, he has nothing he can do about it. One of the few things he can do to get a little bit, a small measure of comfort, a little bit of relief is walking around. Uh, he goes on a tour here. He goes to Lewin's tower. Already had thought of him. He's going to think of Lewin when he's down in the crypts and those lessons. His own bedroom, um, thinking about where he came from. He thinks about how other people have it. His own bedroom covered in snow is pretty symbolic. Micken's Forge, he goes there where Theon got his own original sword for. And Micken was one of the signs Theon had lost control because he had Micken executed uh, for talking back. And even Catelyn's Sept is gone. I mean, Theon doesn't have any real connection to that, but it's still a notable part of his tour that it's a change to the place. Theon continues proving he does know parts of the castle that others don't, which is kind of an underlying theme here. Is, is Theon's knowledge of the castle going to be relevant to Stannis' invasion or something else? Um, it doesn't just have to be Stannis. It could be something else. Yeah, he knows these, this couple of stairways. It isn't shown that he knows any sort of secret passages. He, he specifically thought how he doesn't know any secret passages, but that doesn't mean his knowledge of the place isn't relevant. And he goes to the heart tree. That's so big a moment in this in this set of chapters here, maybe one of the most meaningful ones. Nina writes, it's one of the most saddest moments of his whole arc. He's so lost, so broken. He doesn't even know what to pray for. He knows he wants to pray. He knows he needs help, but he doesn't even know what to say. He doesn't know what would save him. He's so far gone that he can't even imagine what would be a succor for him at this point. What would be mercy? He thinks of himself as a ghost. There's ghosts in Winterfell. He's one of them. As tragic and dark as that is, it's a really brilliant way to lead us to the crypts. 
to lead us up to that because, of course, there's plenty of conceptual ghosts down there, if not foreshadowing for them to literally rise. He hears crying. This is a peculiar moment. He, he thinks that it's Jane, but how could it possibly be Jane? She's in her bedroom. He's in the Godswood. It's, again, he doesn't want to think about it. He's trying not, he, he leaves when he hears the crying. It's, he's, ah, I got to get away. But that seems like Bren. It seems like it's the actual heart tree. It's another example of where the answer doesn't register. Theon doesn't conceive that possibility. He's like, why would it be the tree? Why would the tree be crying? <laughs> so the, the answer to us is more possible. That's an option to us as readers. Like, yeah, the tree could be crying. Bran's in it, right? And if not Bran, well, other long dead Starks and people, whoever else. So it's a good example of that, like, John didn't think of the possibility of two fake Arias. <laughs> Theon's not thinking about the possibility that the heart tree could actually be crying, that he could actually be hearing it. He thinks he's hearing things. He thinks it's something else. He thinks it's Jane. He doesn't, it doesn't, just doesn't register. If Brand 4 had made it into this book, apparently it was close to, but George pushed it to the next book. This is something I wonder, was it going to be addressed? Why is Brand crying? Is it because he feels bad for Theon? Does he feel bad for... Jane, does he feel bad for all of Winterfell? Does he feel bad for Jojen? Is it just something on his side of things that's happening and it's just somehow spilling through the tree? A lot of possibilities. Don't have answers. Just trying to name some of the more popular theories that I think have a chance of being accurate. So let's talk about the crypts. He feels even more unwelcome in the crypts than he does in the Godswood. Uh, makes sense, I guess. There's actual Starks in the, in the crypts. And the Winterfell tree is a little different conceptually. And he, feeling like a turncloak, feeling like an enemy of the Starks, of course, it makes him feel like they're judging him and it fills him with dread. And it's warmer down there, interestingly, though. Quote, He had always thought of the crypts as cold, and so they seemed in summer. But now, as they descended, but now, as they descended the air grew warmer. Not warm, never warm, but warmer than above. Down there below the earth, it would seem, the chill was constant, unchanging. Yeah, very similar to the way Bran conceives of it, which is some people wonder if this is maybe slight evidence that if you go far enough down in the crypts to the area that's ruined, maybe you get to some really deep tunnels and maybe who knows where that leads. I've even seen theories that it, le it leads to the same tunnel system that Bran is in. I'm not sure I'm willing to go that far, but I certainly can't say it's not true. I certainly can't say for sure on any of these things. Nina thinks this, this Barbary wanting to go in the Star Crypts was a very emotional experience, a, a sense of closure for her. She, that's what she needed. So much of what motivates her comes from that deep bitterness she feels at what happened to her with the Starks. She wanted to be one of them, wanted to be with Brandon. Catelyn took that away. And then eventually, her, her, the man she really did marry died because of Starks as well. Sadness, hate, disappointment. Even in, she can be intellectual about a lot of it, but that doesn't take away the sting. It's too much one that's still driving her actions now so many years later. So yeah, she really did love Brandon. You know, you could tell she touches her, puts her hand on the statue's knee. It's very meaningful, very touching moment, pun intended. But she never had a real chance to say goodbye to him, it seems like. Like he was murdered in the South, didn't have a chance to be together in their relationship, wouldn't have seen that coming, that he was going to die. She probably thought that even though they couldn't be together, she might still get to see him every once in a while. And not even that is how it worked out. So this is 
a real human moment, in other words. This is not, there's nothing, there may be other things going on, but Barbary's main conviction here is legitimate. She's not trying to like pass info through Theon like we've thought about in other spots. I think she's sincere when she says, don't repeat any of this. Because I think there's some things she wouldn't mind Bruce and Ramsey finding out about, and maybe she would be willing to use him as a cat's paw, as a go-between to, to move information. This one, though, I don't think she wants Bruce Ramsey knowing that she's sentimental about Starks. Again, Bruce trusts her because he trusts her hatred of him. So if, if something, if he gets evidence to the contrary, that might make him untrustworthy of her. And, he, and she doesn't want that. She doesn't want Bruce not trusting her. <laughs> George also apparently inserts a few history repeating itself type themes here. Not only is Theon named after Theon the Hungry Wolf or have the same name as Theon Stark the Hungry Wolf, but even Lady Dustin's guard, Baron. She specifically says his name. And then we get this line that includes the mention of not only Baron Stark, but a whole bunch of other famous names we've heard before. This is a great quote. King Edric Snowbeard, who had ruled the North for a hundred years, Brandon the shipwright, who had sailed beyond the sunset, Theon Stark, the Hungry Wolf, my namesake, Lord Baron Stark, who made common cause with Castor the Rock to war against Dagon Greyjoy, Lord of Pike, in the days when the Seven Kingdoms were ruled in all but name by the bastard sorcerer men called Bloodraven. Gosh, I wonder why Bloodraven's getting mentioned so shortly after Bran's chapter. <laughs> it's just all these details about him just here and there, sprinkle a little Bloodraven here and there. But again, Dagon Greyjoy and Bloodraven, how many times have we talked about those two characters? <laughs> so many times in, throughout Valar Aretas. They have popped up a lot. George is, definitely wants us to be aware of those figures. Again, I'll say Dagon's a bit of a Euron parallel. Um, and of course, Bloodraven's his old thing. I just wanted to say, I also think it's worth noting that we have that King Edric Snowbeard, which yeah. is with a K. But we've long pointed out just that it's interesting that we have Edric Dane, who's called Ned, and now we have Edric and Edric Snowbeard. It's another yeah. weird connection there. You ruled the North for 100 years. I wonder about that. I mean, what is that supposed to mean? It, this is a good example. It's like another one like Jerrion Lannister, Dagon, Bloodraven, things like that, where this is, this is a historical figure that's been mentioned several times. Mm -hmm. And you wonder, we don't have a straightforward parallel for him. Everyone else we have, Theon is, well, we have Theon himself as a bit of a parallel. Brandon the Shipwright, we even mentioned the parallel to him a few minutes ago. Alyssa yeah. Farman this, with the Sun Chaser. This, he was uh, tried this journey before her uh, with much less success. Uh, again, yeah, so Baron Stark has his match here as well. Dagon, uh, Bloodraven. So yeah, good call. I wonder about Edric. He's mentioned those Wolf Den stories, so maybe there's a reason... Someone's going to parallel him or something like that. I don't know. Very curious. Yeah, they say, by the way, with Edric, that he ruled the North for 100 years, which you're like, oh, that's crazy. But then you're, you know, it is not 100 years is an exaggeration. But imagine if King Edric, say, inherited as like a two-year-old. Yeah, maybe he ruled And for then he ruled until years. he was 90 or something. Yeah. Then yeah, that's close enough to 100 years. And they call him Snowbeard. So he clearly lived very old. In the other anecdote, we're told that it was his grandson or is his, maybe even his great-grandson, Brandon Ice Eyes, that took over. So yeah. it's certain to so corroborate. Yeah, yeah, he would have outlived a bunch of them. Yeah, so it seems yeah. like he was a guy who lived a long time. Yeah, so what, yeah, what is that? Who, who are they telling us about with that? It's very, yeah, I'm really, that's a peculiar reference. Definitely maybe puts Brand. my head <laughs> Yeah, it could be. Brand's going to live a while, potentially. Yeah, you're right. <laughs> <laughs> uh, 
Uh, Lady Dustin notices the missing swords. Let's have that quote. It was true. Theon did not recall which king it was, but the longsword he should have held was gone. Streaks of rust remained to show where it had been. The sight disquieted him. He had always heard that the iron in the sword kept the spirits of the dead locked within their tombs. That's the one that Hodor took. We do know which, we, we know that Hodor took a sword from some long dead king, but we don't know which one it was. I know you guys rely on us for that, but hey, we just don't know. The other swords taken were much simpler. Brandon's, Rickard's, and Ned's. So recently dead, although Ned's corpse is of course not actually in there. Uh, if we're looking for examples of which kings and corpses might rise in the crypts of Winterfell much later down the line, Brandon's body is still fresh-ish. Uh, Rickard's may be a little charred, but it could be there as well. They won't have swords keeping them locked in, if that even matters. And whoever this king was that Hodor took, well, I guess we might find out then <laughs> when it rises, maybe. Or maybe it'll just be too chaotic because there'll be so many of them. So anyway, there's a little more setup for that. Joe notes, back inside the hall, Mance just can't stop with the Dornishman's wife, can he? <laughs> Easily the top of his Spotify rap thingy. <laughs> His part will become louder in this chapter, even if a bit indirectly. For now, he's playing risky business by changing the lyrics so that the song is about tasting a Northman's daughter. But he knew what he was doing, I guess. Certainly, the Boltons laughed, and that worked out. Nina makes a, writes a note about this part as well. And it's cool because the, the, the song is about accepting death when it comes, about greeting death uh, without fear, which is the theme we've been on and off this whole episode and a little bit last time was talking about Wyman Manderly getting ready to die like the proverbial old man going out in winter to hunt. Ditto what we just talked about with the Watcher chapter and death not being sacred to adornishments. This stuff wraps up really well in a lot of different ways, which is so cool. There's probably like five different connection points here. And it's easy to read this book five times and miss them all every time. That's how deep and subtle some of this stuff is. Well done. Also, this speaks to what's coming. The Dornishman's wife uh, stealing her out. <laughs> stealing Lady Arya. That's, that's more of the Bale the Bard side of this with his anagram name Abel, but still the lack of fear of death and, and living life to its fullest is very well expressed there. We get Rowan, the first of Mance's spear wives that we're going to meet through Theon's chapters here. She uses standard, a standard approach for a dude, right? She tries to sex him up, tries to flatter him, but she doesn't realize what he's been through and how that stuff's not going to work. He's, sexual temptation just doesn't exist for him anymore because he is a eunuch. And, well, flattery isn't going to work either because he's so, his view of himself is so dim and his paranoia is so high that he's, he's very suspicious of her ulterior motives. He's right to be, so he's on, he's on the right track. He doesn't quite know what's going on, but he's right in general to be suspicious. So we'll, we'll be following up more of that when we get to it, because of course that's just getting started. A lot more of Mance and Mance slash Abel and the so-called washerwomen who are really spearwives. Roos declares the snowstorm is the vengeance of the old gods on Stannis for being a stranger in the north. But it looks like if the theories are accurate, as we have outlined in the Battle of Ice episodes, as well as elsewhere. 
that Stannis might be making the snow into an advantage. This whole this whole chapter talks so much about the snow covering things and hiding things. And a particular idea that seems to fit very well is that Stannis is going to trick the Boltons and Freys onto uh, the ice, which they will not see because it will be covered by aforementioned snow. And thus they will fall into the lake and Stannis will win a glorious victory through some pretty clever maneuvering. You can hear more about that in our Battle of Ice episode. Please do. We got three of them. So lots of to dive in there. Nina writes that as much as Theon is coming back to his old self a little bit, that's not all good. <laughs> like the thoughts he has about Rowan, about what he would do to her, are, yeah, they're not good. They're a little, they're a little misogynistic. Theon was very, uh, his view of women was very unenlightened, shall we say. But that's nothing new. Tracy McMillan writes more on his identity that really you have all his identities in this chapter. He's Reek for a little bit. He's Theon for a bit. He's the Prince of Winterfell for a bit. He's the Ghost of Winterfell for a bit. Yeah, a little bit like, it doesn't come off like schizophrenia. He's not struggling with which one's in control, but they're all there. I mean, he's the turncloak. He's turning. (laughs) That's right. The way even his location in the castle will bring forward a particular personality, like where it's, it's sort of like the part of the castle he's in is the part of him that comes out. Like he's in, when he's in front of the tree, he's the ghost. When uh, he's in the crypts, he's the turncloak. When they're asking him about the place to learn more about it, he's the prince. When he's uh, being yelled at, being admonished, being cursed, he's the turncloak. And when he's cowering from Ramsay, he's reeked. Well said, Tracy. That's a great way to put it. He is, when we're talking about identity issues, really makes sense to hone in on the individual's personalities he's feeling or he's, he's that are manifesting and tracing them to why and when they manifest in particular cases. So good job. Sophia uh, writes that the snowballs and snowmen that the men are playing with reminds her of Arya and Sansa. There were snowballs then um, early on in Game of Thrones when it was snowing before all that, all that activity. Tree Girl suggests that maybe Howland Reed is aware of Lady Dustin's wanting to claim Ned's bones and has thus held on to them to keep them safe for now. Because it is weird that Ned's bones haven't made it north yet. Certainly, one would have expected that by now. After all, he died a while ago and his bones were given to Rob River on a while ago, and they still haven't made it north. Yeah, there's a reason for that. I, I think someone is aware, or there's some other reason for it being delayed. But don't think they're just going to emerge. Just <laughs> here's the bones, like they're ig- ignorant of what's coming. So, yep, yep. I mean, heck, Bruce Bolton has gone through the neck since well before those bones were sent north. So, gives you a little timeline there. All right, that's it for today. Last week, we covered 164 minutes, 45 seconds. This week, it's 150 and 19. We've covered 1,664 minutes out of 2,922. That puts us at just below 57%, 56.9 to be precise. You mean there's 6.9 right there? <laughs> hey, nice. Very nice number. Good cat. How did I miss that? <laughs> As always, you can check the podcast version, compare it to the video version, get an idea of how much editing happens. It's a little tighter, the podcast version, but of course, you don't get to see my smiling, bearded face. Maybe you don't care about that. <laughs> well, there's Michael Klarfeld's awesome maps behind 
Those are much nicer than that. Don't forget to like the video, leave a review. Check out our website. Shay, I put a lot of work into making it real easy to go to a specific chapter, um, whatever book, whatever chapter you want to go to, takes you right there. So you don't have to go searching and, and struggling to find out where it is you, you wanted to go. Yeah, it's just a nice little drop-down uh, menu at the top. You can click on each book. Along the same lines, we also redid our main podcast feed to reorganize things. We've mentioned that a few times, but in case you hadn't noticed, here's another reminder. A lot easier to listen to batches of episodes that are related to each other. You could listen to all of our Blackfire episodes in a row, for example. So we know that a lot of people, a lot of the ways people consume our show is through binging. Uh, the long length of our episodes is makes that, facilitates that. So we're trying to keep that in mind try to keep the user experience in mind and, and make things a little easier for y'all and kind of set things up so you have less work to do to get the episodes to where you need them. As usual, we try to mention our scripted content that gets brought up during Valar Reredus. We talked about the Crypt of Winterfell quite a bit. There's a lot more we have to say about that in the episode of the same name. Once again, Blood Raven has come up, so I remind you of his episodes. We got three of them. Our House Dane episodes are a little relevant, more part two than part one, because we're going to talk about characters in part two, and that's when we talk about Dark Star. Battle of Ice just came up. All those episodes and all the possibilities for Stannis. Ditto the Sun Chaser episode with Alyssa Farman, which involves explorations, uh, navigation, dragon's eggs, krakens, the high towers. Very cool stuff. Highly recommended that one as well. That was from our Fire and Blood series. Next time for more episodes, we've got a little onomatopoeia with this ones. The King's Prize, the one with the cold count, a.k.a. Big Bucket wants to bathe in Bolton blood. Daenerys Seven, a secret pact by the Red Door, a.k.a. the Harpy weds the dragon. John Nine, the Princess and the Queen and the Fool and the Banker, a.k.a. Alice in One Wonderland. <laughs> ah. And the blind girl, Daycat, lighter of the Nightwolf, <laughs> aka dressing the dead in darkness. Yeah, that's a huge chapter. Man, rereading the blind girl. Whew, I can't wait to talk about that one. That's really exciting. But the ones before it are really good too. So folks, it never slows down with Valar Reredus. There's always awesome chapters coming up next. That has not changed. We will see you then for that. Some thanks to Joe and Nina for their excellent contributions, for Ashea for doing so much all at once. For our, to our mods, for leading discussions over on Facebook, to everyone who participates on Flick, Slack, and Discord as well, uh, to Michael Klarfeld for Maps, to Kevin McLeod for Valerie's music, for, to Jesse Koval and Jesse, Jesse, ah, do that so often. Joey Townsend and Jesse Koval, I mix their <laughs> names up every time, <laughs> I swear. They're great dudes, they're responsible for our music. In our regular episodes, thanks to Benjineer for the sound quality and audio assistance. Thank you very much to our patrons for being who you are, for supporting the show financially. We absolutely could not do this without you. It is a blessing we can, a blessing from you. Uh, Here Be Dragons is talking about The Expanse today. And speaking of The Expanse, every Friday night for the rest of season five of The Expanse, uh, Ash is going to be on Fandom Media. So I'll be reminding y'all, if you come to the game streams, I'll be reminding y'all. But if you don't come to the game streams every Friday, 
There's This is your reminder. If you're a fan of The Expanse, go check out Ash and Kyle every Friday or catch the replay on the Fandom Media channel when you get the chance. Yeah, Expanse we're doing it at 9 p.m. Eastern, which is a nice later stream, I think. Uh, so hopefully that's a little different for you all. She is a huge fan of The Expanse. So am I. So you're going to want to tune in and hear her thoughts because she's very knowledgeable about it and probably stuff you've missed. She's read the book, so have I. So it's, it's a great series, just as a as an aside. If you haven't gotten into The Expanse at all, I'm just going to give you another recommendation here. It is awesome. It's it's one of our favorites, period. Yeah, it's my favorite fi- sci-fi series, one of my favorite TV shows, for sure. Absolutely. Yeah. So big praise there. We're not blowing smoke. That is that is true. We love The Expanse. So check it out. Check out Here Be Dragons. Check out Fandom Media Fridays. And we'll see you next time, folks, for more Valar Reads.